Welcome to Game & Watch with Aaron and James, the show where we talk about games we've been gaming and movies and TV shows we've been watching. I am Aaron. And I'm James. And today we're talking about Bloodborne, which is the 2015 action horror RPG uh, produced and released by From Software. Was yes. it released by From or released by Namco Bandai? Namco Bandai, I believe. Namco Bandai. Yeah. Um, well, let's uh, cast all of our eyes and ah. get a little insight into Bloodborne with a special guest today. Introduce um, should yourself. We, should we fear the old blood of James's family line? <laughs> uh, we're joined today uh, by my brother, Tom, who is a bloodborne guru in my eyes that's a nice way of putting it um well, well, i mean what am i gonna call you like a fucking nerd yep that pretty much no not <laughs> in yeah, my I, I, not in my yeah. eyes how about how about this a bloodborne scholar i think it would yeah be that's a perfect that that's a bloodborne scholar yeah that's actually. much much better uh yeah. Also, Aaron, how long were you working on that uh, insight joke before we um, started? Literally came up with it as I was, thinking, <laughs> which is how I come up with most of the things that I say. I'm glad. Barely I, any fourth. I I know. I I you are you are an improviser, and and I know you definitely were not up all night last night working on that <laughs> <No>. joke. <laughs> um, but the reason we have a scholar like Tom is because this game is uh it is is a spicy meatball. There's a lot to dissect, a lot to discuss. So uh, in addition to having a guest, which is very different for us, what else is going to be different about our coverage of Bloodborne? This is going to be a two-part episode. So if you don't want yeah. to hear about Bloodborne, well, sorry, uh, you're going to not want to listen to this show for two weeks. Uh, because I don't know if we're going to release a movie episode between part one and part two. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what we want to do about that yet. But yeah, this is going to be a two-part episode. Um, we're going to try to find the right stopping point between part one and part two. I think part one, we're going to dedicate to kind of the development, the gameplay of the game and some of its kind of higher uh, overarching themes, its designs, aesthetics, kind of like some of its mechanics, items, etc. And then part two is going to have our usual segments, but the bulk of it is going to be spent on the deep, deep lore and plot of the game. And sp more specifically into areas. Probably. Yes, specifically. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, we're going to talk about histories with the game just a, in a little bit. But I do want to say that Tom had been playing Bloodborne far before I I had been. Uh, and I would say that, again, like as we mentioned, having him here is very important because I, I honestly don't know if I know anyone who knows more about this game than he does. And so, Tom, just want to say thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I don't know if I should take that comment as a compliment or as a sign that I need to do other things with my life. Uh, I think it's playing Bloodborne. <laughs> I think it's a compliment. I think it's a compliment. Yeah, I think you should take all comments like that and but from Aaron and I as a compliment as a compliment. Yeah. Fair and enough. we'll we'll mention it later, <laughs> but I think more so than a lot of the other Souls games, uh Bloodborne has a very active online community. People are still very very into Bloodborne. It has uh probably a more passionate, really dedicated small fan base than I think a lot of the other Souls games. Yeah. Yeah, I would say certainly in my experience with uh, you know, at, at least uh, Dark Souls one through three, and um, 
and Bloodborne. I would say Bloodborne probably has, yeah, the most dedicated, uh, well, not the most dedicated, but but in terms of the size of the community and the amount of work that has gone into um, lore hunting and even just like online presence and and summoning for bosses and areas. Yeah, Bloodborne is uh, is definitely, I think, in another tier relative to other games. Yeah, and not not even just because of the kind of the general aesthetic difference between Dark Souls 1 through 3 and now Elden Ring and Demon Souls and this, and that I'm sure there are plenty of people out there that are diehard Bloodborne fans that honestly don't even want to fuck too much with the rest of the series. I don't actually know anyone who's like, Bloodborne is the only one for me and I hate the rest, but I'm sure that kind of person exists just because the the, the gothic horror elements of this game appeal to them more than medieval fantasy. I also think there are probably people for whom they played the other Souls game, but this is the one they return to the most. And I think people that are really into PvP probably re- like go to Bloodborne frequently. It's just my yeah. guess. Yeah. I think yeah. Bloodborne, at least as far as PvP goes, and I won't you know dwell on this, but I think Dark Souls 2 was, was the first game that really introduced um, a strong PvP environment for people to to duel we saw it in the coliseum the dlc of dark souls one but i think dark souls two is really where where a lot of people at least in my experience were going to to you know do player versus player fights but i think yeah to your point uh aaron bloodborne is definitely um i think the the franticness and the uh the hecticness of of the movement in the game along with the weapon you know speeds and and actions and stuff like that probably leads more people to uh to play the pvp in that game absolutely um should we jump into the the development of this this big bad you want to lead that one off aaron yeah so i was actually incorrect earlier when i said it was published by namco bandai yeah um it was (laughs) developed by fromsoft but it was actually published by sony Um, (sighs) gotta start the episode over (laughs) yeah this is a sony exclusive i believe all of from's other cross-platform games were namco bandai that's right uh but yes this is a sony exclusive published by sony uh appearing on the playstation 4 the first images for the game were shown in 24 14 um, and back then it was codenamed project beast i remember following this a bit and i remember seeing very early shots of i believe like gas coin um and some of the beast designs um so this is still when bloodborne actually all through bloodborne's marketing it was very much a, like a werewolf beast kind of game mm. um or at least you know presented that way it was directed by Hidetaka Miyazaki, who we discussed before in our Soulsborne episode. So go take a listen to that. But some additional facts about him that I thought were relevant uh, about Bloodborne um, is that I didn't realize he was not allowed to play video games at all as a child. I didn't know that either. Instead, focused on board games, specifically sorcery and books, specifically things like D&D, different monster manuals. Um, and the works of H.P. Lovecraft, who yep. um, we're, we're going to talk about in just a bit. Miyazaki has said in interviews that Bloodborne is the favorite thing that he has done. And Though I, that was before Elden Ring, I guess. True. Yes. Or maybe it was it was right before Elden Ring came out. So I guess he could have said it, that it was his favorite thing. But I, honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if this was still his favorite. I think thematically and aesthetically, and I I just think everything comes together in Bloodborne in a way that just clicks perfectly. Um, I don't think it's the best game in the series, but I do think it's a very cohesive whole. So I can imagine being the director, finding that extremely satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, development began in 20, I'm sorry, 2012. And that was a year after Dark Souls 1. Uh, it was developed in parallel with Dark Souls 2. Um, though, you know, Miyazaki consulted on Dark Souls 2. Bloodborne was his first priority. Uh, so Dark Souls 2, there are many structural differences that the game famously has a very convoluted development cycle. So um, probably as a result of Miyazaki's uh, not indirect oversight, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom, do you know anything else about the development? I'm sure you know way more than, uh, you know, James or I do. Actually, yeah, as far as the development goes, I, I won't say I'm too knowledgeable. Um, but I think you pretty much cover everything that, that I knew. Um I guess maybe another point to mention as far as like influences of Miyazaki, and this extends more to the Dark Souls series in general than, than specifically Bloodborne, but I think it's relevant is that um, growing up a lot of the things that he would read, um, I think there were, you know, translation differences, obviously because he's Japanese and so a lot of the, the uh, Western literature he was reading is, was in English. Um, his, his minimalistic style of storytelling in the games and environmental storytelling, I think is very telling of his experience reading uh, literature that was more or less foreign to him um, in a lot of respects when he was growing up. Uh, and I think a lot of that influence uh, influences the, the, all, all of his games, but certainly Bloodborne for sure. Um, so, yeah. And you can kind of see that in terms of, you know, if he was looking at things like monster manuals that feature heavy amounts of text, but also really vivid, imaginative pictures and art, you know, you can kind of see that in the games where these really amazing designs in terms of architecture and creatures. But like you said, Tom, that minimalism of, you know, story and dialogue. um, I think that's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. It's real cool. It is. (laughs) Um, so this game was released on the PlayStation 4, which was the next console. Um, Dark Souls 1 and 2 and Demon Souls were released for the PS3, um, Xbox 360 era. Uh, this was not a launch title, but it did come out relatively early in the PlayStation 4 lifespan. Uh, my PlayStation 4 was essentially a Bloodborne machine for the first like two years that I bought it. Um, And you can kind of tell that this is a big jump up in technology for the developers because the game can afford to load much larger, more detailed areas and can load, uh, shall we say, vast amounts of items on screen. Yeah, a lot of visual clutter. Um, And because I probably probably won't talk about, won't break down like what works and what doesn't in great detail until... Well, I guess we'll be peppering it throughout, won't we? Because we're going to be spending yeah. a lot of extra time on things, so I, I won't hesitate to say things. One of the things I don't think work works about this game, and, and this is a very, very minor complaint, and I know I've told this to both of you, is there is so much detail on screen, I think, for worse sometimes. Um, and the way that that, the form that that takes, for, for anyone who's listening and has not played the game, or I guess who's wondering what I'm talking about, uh, if it isn't obvious, there are shitloads of like gravestones, statues, coffins, um, trees, even like shrubbery, like in a, in a it's it's so much that it's like when I read that they were trying to put as much detail into the game as possible, I was like, that makes a lot of sense. Even like the the equivalent of like bloodstains in this game are like crazily animated when they don't need to be. There's a lot going on on the screen at one time. And I don't, sometimes I really wish that the game had taken just a little bit of a restrained step. And again, this is not a strong complaint at all. It's just sometimes I think less is more. 
I also think that contributes to the generally long loading times, um, especially pre-patch. Like at dawn, I know the load times were horrific. I was just going to say, I didn't have experience with it, but I heard that when this game came out, the load times were so horrible that people, and when people were talking about the difficulty of this game, because I had had heard a lot of the press about the game without having played it that early. And it was, people were really complaining about how hard it was. And I think I didn't realize until later that, Part of what they were talking about was not just the game's difficulty in terms of its fighting and bosses. It's that every time you die to a boss, the load screens would take forever to just respawn you, exactly. which no one wants to play that. You know, no, that's that's brutal. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. Um, so this is the first game in the Soulsborne kind of series that introduces guns. We've had crossbows. We've had bows, things like that. We've had magic spells. Um, these are guns and guns uh, go in your offhand uh, like a shield would. Um, and they're mainly used to interrupt enemies. Uh, there are guns that have specific damage type like fire, uh, things like that. But uh, they're not really meant to be a primary offensive tool. Uh, they're just kind of meant as, to augment your weapon set. Um, anything about guns, bef- you know, before gameplay gun stuff? I, I don't know. I don't I'm I think we would probably get the rest of it saved for gameplay, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I think um, it, it, it's also important to mm. mention that this kind of, you know, adds a clue to the time period we're in. Guns yeah, exist. yeah, right. Um, yeah, this is not medieval fantasy. I sort no. of hinted at it earlier. This is like, you know, this is a Victorian, like, gothic horror. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So around that time period. So we have, you know, simplified pistols and flintlocks and things like that. Yeah. But one thing we are going to talk about for, yeah, blunderbusses. I can't forget cannons. Yeah. I love that. We're going to talk for a little bit right now about H.P. Lovecraft um, because the influence of H.P. Lovecraft's work on these games is massive. And this is another reason I'm glad we have Tom here because I think, Aaron, both you and Tom know more about H.P. Lovecraft specific works than I do. I've only read a couple. Um, I've read a lot about him, um, but yeah, well, I mean, why don't Aaron, you take the lead on Lovecraft and Tom, I'm sure you'll have plenty to say about it too. Yeah, he, you know, we're not going to talk about a lot about him specifically, but just generally he wrote uh, a lot of pulp stories, uh, kind of came up with really sort of the first, you know, not cinematic universe, but fictional kind of universe that bled out, uh, you know, across different people. He, you know, his pulp stories write a lot about these, you know, old gods, these big cosmic entities, and then certain names of those gods would make it into, say, Conan and, you know, certain characters from other pulp stories and make it into his works and things like that. Um, and he was relatively unknown until after his death. Uh, his, his works carry a lot of themes of cosmic horror, meaning, you know, horror so far removed from the earth and, you know, our known universe and things coming from beyond known space and just completely incomprehensible to the human mind. Uh, A lot of fear of the unknown in his works. And kind of, as I said, like the insignificance of our human identities, our societies, um, the things we try and build to keep ourselves safe. Uh, He writes a lot about how knowledge is bad, that certain knowledge or seeing certain things may drive you mad and may destroy you. Um, what else, Tom? There's, you know, there's just so much to unpack from Lovecraft. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you, you definitely covered, um, a lot of the major themes and a lot of his work. Um, really only other thing to add is he started off writing for science fiction magazines. Um, and he's credited as creating what 
is called the weird tail, which basically um, is sort of like the uh, the progenitor to 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 cosmic horror. Um, you know, so a lot of and actually I've I've read some of his um, some of his like early early works, and a lot of it's actually pretty cheesy. It's it's you know it's like people go into a dark cave and they and they find a you know this this abhorrent beast. Um, you know, and, and actually it's well I don't want to go too far down a rabbit hole, but um, the the actual the the beast design in Bloodborne, like specifically in Thing of the Lorenz Silver Beast, like the long white hair, the very mm-hmm. scraggly um, limbs, is I remember reading the, the the first one of his first works. Basically, describes that exact design almost. Um, it's it's very it's very coincidental, <laughs> or maybe not. Um, but yeah, it's but it's very it was very cheesy stuff. I mean, it's like oh, and it turns out the beast was actually a human that all along and. Um, stuff like that, but yeah, a lot of the a lot of the cosmic aspect of his work is is I think probably what he's most known for. Um, you know, with the yeah. likes of the Cthulhu myth- mythos and things like that. Yeah, if you buy any of Lovecraft's works, you can buy you know collected Lovecraft anthologies for pretty cheap. Um, but if you do, I would Google best Lovecraft stories or you know in some way have someone guide you through them because I bought one collection that was just chronologically when he wrote his stories. And Tom's absolutely right. The beginning ones are pretty rough and pretty silly. Um, yeah, so a, you're 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 better off looking at a guide of you know read this and this and this kind of yes yeah. yeah that's that's one thing I wish I had known because it sounds like <laughs> but well and I, I'll, I'll say that Bloodborne was the reason that I purchased that that anthology of his works <laughs> um, because I just and I maybe we can talk about this more but I went into Bloodborne not knowing any of the the Lovecraftian influences. I didn't even really know who, I mean, I'd heard of Cthulhu, but I never really knew who Lovecraft was. So the first time I played this game um, and you get to that point was a transformative experience for me. So um, that is something that I really appreciate about this game because it really got me into that, that cosmic horror um, love. I wish I didn't know about the cosmic horror elements about this game. I I did know probably too much about this game going in. It didn't make the game have any like, like a massively less effect on me but like knowing like when i guess when cosmic horror showed up it didn't surprise me that's what i should say i didn't know it was coming but i knew the hp lovecraft influence and i knew things about some of his works and so when that eventually happens i was like oh okay this makes sense but holy cow is it cool i uh i discovered lovecraft by way of stephen king because stephen king often cites him as an influence so mm-hmm. i had read some lovecraft obviously not all of lovecraft but I had read, you know, some of the more famous Lovecraft stuff before Bloodborne. I also had no idea that there was any Lovecraftian influence on it. Um, I didn't actually know a ton about the game and all the pre, you know, release material was about the werewolf kind of uh, element of it. So when that started, you know, that turn started happening happening in the game, my mind was completely blown and I just, I loved every second of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before we move on, I guess, you know, again, kind of to reiterate what you said, Aaron, one of the one of the big takeaways, and it's going to be even more evident in kind of part two of this of this two part series is that you mentioned like the fear of the unknown, but the, the idea of that knowledge is bad and that seeking and experiencing knowledge, like you said, like that can drive you mad. And that is one of my favorite elements just personally about Lovecraftian horror, just the idea that there are things that are beyond that are so beyond our understanding or even if we begin to understand them we realize kind of the horrors that they wrought like that it it, it drives us insane it, it makes us into bad people and it's sometimes it's just power which is you know very similar to a lot of other you know works and, and very consistent with actual history 
Um, but sometimes it's like the like the idea of like in and there and there's some of that in this game too, like almost more more innocent people. I wouldn't say completely innocent, but innocent people becoming victims of either others seeking that knowledge or them seeking knowledge. The idea that a good person can be driven mad by this type of thing. It's so prevalent in this game, and it, it is one of the coolest, coolest factors about it. Absolutely. Uh, the one other Lovecraftian thing I think we should talk about really quickly before we move on. Yes. Is that oftentimes in Lovecraft's writing, he has a difficult time describing these otherworldly things because the whole point is that you can't really describe them or understand them. So frequently he will describe, you know, a beast who, you know, defied human comprehension, but mentioned that it was a mass of, you know, tentacles and eyes and claws and things like that. And I think honestly for him, he just, you know, lacked the imagination to fully describe it. I think he was a very imaginative person, but I think perhaps he wasn't visually imaginative in the way that he could like maybe draw out what he was thinking. Um, But that's what they've done in Bloodborne, which I think is very cool. They've taken these kind of indescribably horrific creatures, uh, you know, from beyond the stars and actually rendered them in a visible way. Think Abritus, um think just so many of the kin monsters you know yeah. it, it makes those incomprehensible sort of monsters comprehensible and real but also really horrifying yes yep and almost that one thing i wish that the game actually would have done more with is showing less in some areas like i wouldn't change a thing about what the game actually has but i would have added hints of something more terrifying that we never see this game likes, likes to show you most of the things that it has. And I, and my, one of the things that terrifies me most in gaming and in and, and horror in general is what I can't see, what I have to imagine is happening. And there is certainly a lot that you need to, the gaps you need to fill in here. Um, but just the idea of like not knowing what's ahead or what's in front of you and the game not showing you on purpose, I think would have, would have been very effective too. But again, still incredible game um i kind of looked the lastly and we we sort of mentioned this in our last episode about souls born in general i mean not specifically about the so there's a bram stoker's dracula type influence on or bram stoker in general uh bram stoker i'm not even sure um on this game um there is a little bit of like a transylvanian type element to you know feel to a lot of the areas in this game and we mentioned last episode that architecture from Eastern Europe, specifically like Romania and Czech Republic or Scotland. And I mean, that that's all over Miyazaki's works. Um, and it is definitely here as well. Um, and I believe that's because he wants to create a more isolated tone. Um, I yeah. don't think he really wants it to be mm. kind of like mainland, you know, content, you know, like continental Europe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this game was released in March, 2015. Uh, and very soon after, uh, a DLC was released, uh, November, 2015. Um, so soon after that you couldn't help, but wonder like, were they working on this with like, and during the main game and couldn't fit all the ideas in when they wanted to, to like meet the release date. And so they just broke some of it off into a DLC. And the answer is that might've happened, right? I think it did because isn't that essentially what happened with Artorius of the Abyss? Like yes. it was just stuff they wanted to put in but couldn't. Yeah. Um, and the reason that I I I even emphasize that is that I 
I, and I don't, I break it off into like the base game and the DLC too much, but I really shouldn't do that. And I should think of it as just the game because this DLC, as we will get into a lot more detail next episode is one of the greatest things I've ever played in my life. I, 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 romanticizing i guess a little but i have a feeling that both of you guys agree it's i mean it's absolutely up there off the top of my head um i would say best soulsborne dlc without Uh, a doubt easily yeah easily and i'm just trying to think of dlc in general but yeah that would come you know first to my mind in top dlc i've played Yeah. yeah not not that i want to make a tier list but i would say that among soulsborne i think dark souls 2 dlc ranks pretty high for me um, at least specifically Broom Tower. I think that is fantastic level design, fantastic um, environmental uh, landscape, stuff like that. The enemies, the bosses are great. Um, in my mind, Old Hunters DLC is is on another level. Um, and yes. I think one thing that speaks to that, uh, James, is you're you're saying that it's y- you you say the base game and the DLC, but it's hard to not just put it into one game. I think that speaks a lot to how well developed the dlc for bloodborne is um and i know for myself from a lore perspective it's impossible to separate the two yeah exactly um, and that and i was just going to mention that too but yeah. go into that in a little bit more detail i guess we, we don't have to go down the, the rabbit hole into yeah, the lore, but yeah um yeah so and, and, and i'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll cover the the general plot of bloodborne so i won't go too much into that but in a general sense the dlc covers a lot of the um uh uh, it's, it's almost like a prologue to the story of, of Bloodborne. And it covers a lot of the, the historical aspects of uh, the, the significant and key players in the, in the main story um, and basically details how they messed up. Um, they encountered, obviously the, the game you know, we talked about, they, they, they encounter some eldritch knowledge or some eldritch truth that, that you know, mortal humans should not be t- messing around with. But um, in, in the case of the, the Old Hunters DLC, they really mess up. Um, and yeah. your job is essentially to clean it up. Um, and yeah, it's, well, I mean, what, what, is there, what is there not to say about it? Everything about yeah. it is just, you know, the difficulty factor is there, obviously, but it's not just the, the fact that it's difficult, as we know from the Soulsborne games. Um, it's how it challenges the player. Um, yes. And I think both of the enemies, um, the placement of en- enemies, the, the NPCs that you meet in the DLC, um, and, and of course the bosses is just almost perfect. If not perfect in my mind, I, I regret how I've tried to sell this game to people who haven't dabbled in the series who maybe who have cut, played a couple, but haven't played bloodborne yet. And I, I always say like the game's great. The base game's great, but the DLC is even better. And I really shouldn't say that. I should just say the game's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and just cause a DLC game, like no one wants to be like, Oh, well then I, so I, I'm just like waiting for the game to get to the DLC. No, I mean, it is like you it's it's one game it's all part of the main game and it the lore in the story is so it's so rich and you just it's just one of the one of the best dlcs i've ever played i think it does what great dlc should do which is both lore wise story wise and gameplay wise uh recontextualize what you've experienced in the main game yes um in some way but also add context to like give context to things that didn't have them in the game base game. Uh, and the old hunters does both of that, like amazingly well, like you said, it, it feels like it just is so naturally incorporated into right. the game that it feels 
to play this game in its entirety with the old hunters and then to excise the old hunters would feel like taking so much more out than a lot of other DLCs. Yes. And the recontextualization, not to, to go on a, a, a ta- too much of a tangent, but Miyazaki is incredible at that um, because Artorias of the Abyss accomplishes the exact same thing. I think it's a weaker DLC because of other elements, as, as good as it is. Um, but yeah, I mean, Miyazaki is just so, so good at it. Yeah. Um, anything else about that? Well, we don't probably don't want to say too much about, else about the DLC right now. Yeah. Um, I could go on. I could go on. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get back to it. Um, so uh, it, maybe it's no surprise to hear that this was hailed as one of the greatest video games of all time. And, and that's, I mean, the reception initially was, was great. Um, critics did knock the game for long load times. Um, as we mentioned, um, that did get remedied slightly. Um, and it was a long, long, long load times with a blank screen, I guess. Yeah. Or it just had the, so I started playing around the transition of when they kind of fixed that. And so originally playing, it was just a black screen that said bloodborne in the bloodborne level or, uh, bloodborne font. And then, you know, once that switch was made, now it has different item descriptions. The only issue with that, though, is I was still in the middle of the game. And so there were references to, like, great ones and random things that mm-hmm. I didn't fully understand. But a savvier gamer might have kind of picked up on those and gotten things spoiled for themselves. Okay, gotcha. And, I mean, there were some critics who did call this one of the greatest games of all time right away i think that in the i mean it's been it's been seven years almost like almost exactly um since this game first came out and in that time i think people the the appreciation for it has only gotten bigger and people do really consider it to be one of the great games um of the modern area or of all time and uh, there really hasn't been a backlash against this game like there, Not really. there is against so many, you know, AAA titles that got highly reviewed. Like Skyrim, obviously, there was a huge backlash against that, you know, getting a bunch of perfect scores. And I feel like it happens every time there's a big AAA title, um, but not, yeah, not with this one. No yeah. backlash that I'm aware of. There's the usual people who knock the game for its difficulty and don't, who aren't fan of it, fans of its storytelling. Um, but even if people are okay with, minimalistic storytelling the the difficulty thing is sometimes insurmountable for some critics and people and i would say that's probably one of the only lingering criticisms of the game i'd yeah i guess i'd say that's fair yeah uh you want to talk about the legacy aaron yeah well tom you can help me out with this too because you're definitely more involved than i am but this game is still very highly played it has a very devoted fan base Uh, It has a very large Reddit community, uh, and in that community, people uh, do, you know, events, essentially. They do yearly runs through the game. They do challenge runs. They help each other out. Uh, Tom, can you talk a little bit, uh, speak to that more directly? Yeah. uh, Again, yeah, what what you mentioned, I still see people, I'm I'm big into... um, not personally myself, but I like to watch people do uh, do speed runs and challenge runs. I'd see people on, you know, I see streamers on Twitch all the time still doing blood level four runs uh, in this game, any percent, hundred percent, you know, all bosses, um, you name it, everything. Um, there's also, I think actually, um, and, and we might talk about them in a bit um, you know, on YouTube, Vati Vidya is, is really great about um, bringing a lot of the souls community together and, and Bloodborne is no exception. Um, and I think I, I watched a video like 
maybe a year ago, maybe two years ago, uh, when it had come out that was, oh, we, you know, we've, we got everyone to go into the chalice dungeons and we finally put all the lore together for every single, you know, every single um, non-procedurally generated chalice dungeon. And we've, you know, we put that all together in a document or something like that. So um, yeah, people are still, people are still playing this game um, and not just playing it, but really continuing to dive into it. I honestly think I've maybe played it at least 10 times now. And every single time I play, I'm always finding something new um, about the lore, finding um, or, or noticing things that, you know, I've watched uh, of media that's been put together by the community. Um, so yeah, 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 I'm, for sure. I'm still seeing YouTube, you know, videos come up every once in a while that, you know, are, Hey, we found this crazy thing in the Bloodborne code. Uh, and yeah, just still being able to mine things from the game, you know, even till today is, is crazy. Yeah. Um, people are still making discoveries about the game as well. Uh, which is always entertaining to see like someone say, like just find something that no one's ever found before. Um, this would make a little bit less sense without further context that we'd give later in this episode and next one. But, you know, there's, there's an area of the game that someone found that, um, kind of it's like what is it not, not procedurally generated it yeah it is procedurally it is procedurally it, it is, yeah, yeah. yeah 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 um with that like an area that can just give you like a ton of blood echoes slash souls for doing absolutely nothing and people can just farm that and level up or buy blood vials with it it's just it's just crazy that, that people are still encountering things like that mm-hmm. and what's interesting too is uh the developers have specifically said they are not going to fix things like that because it's not even a fix you know it's part of the game yeah exactly they so they'll leave things like that in which i think is um is really kind of interesting yeah um we we could talk all day about bloodborne too but we could talk even longer about bloodborne cards yeah uh this oh. game has got a lot of like a lot of legacy we really actually shouldn't because due to time we got a lot to get through um but yeah rumors about bloodborne 2 have been circulating since the release um and there was like more recent buzz going on in October of 2021. Um, and I don't know how Bloodborne cards started, but we could do a whole separate episode on that. But that's just one of the funniest ideas yep. I've ever heard. I, I often think that Bloodborne 2 is fan wish casting because yeah. um, I've read nu- numerous things now for Bloodborne 2 that have said like, oh, Miyazaki's been working on this for the last like five to, you know, four years or whatever. And it's like, listen, he can't have been working on Elden Ring, consulting on Sekiro, like apparently also making Bloodborne 2. Like he's, no, he's one human. He can't have been doing all these things. Elden Ring's too massive of a a game for him to have been doing other things. I would love Bloodborne 2, but I I do not think he has secretly been keeping that on the back burner. Well, I think we all know that the the FromSoft B team actually worked on Elden Ring while the A team was focusing all their time and effort towards Bloodborne cart. So that's that's we'll true. Probably oh. see that being <laughs> that's true. I mean, it works for the Pokemon company. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, just as another quick shout out for Legacy, and this was actually very recently released, and I think it's important to mention just because of um, you know what it means to the community for this game is there was just they just recently released um, a PlayStation D make of Bloodborne. Yeah. Uh, um, yes. which I think deserves a huge shout out. Um, yeah, it's just incredible because the looking. team that put it together. I mean. And I and you guys can obviously appreciate this more than me, just because I didn't necessarily grow up with at least the early PlayStation. But I think that the aesthetics of those graphics combined with the story of Bloodborne are two things that were meant to be together. And oh somebody my gosh, realized yeah. that 
and they and they put it to you know they they put it together and uh, and that is now available to play absolutely so. it is okay i yes. only ever thought it was you know youtube mock-ups but from the moment i saw that i wanted to i wanted to play it there's something about uh, just the suggestion of things and still the color palette and tone because as we said bloodborne is so you know heavily cluttered the way they were able to kind of you know minimalize it to make it work for play, like playstation one is incredible like an incredible yeah. feat of design if nothing else yeah absolutely um we let's park a little bit on our histories with the game really quick and then we should try to probably fly through a lot of the things we probably can't afford to park on too many other things at least we'll have to move kind of quickly um but that's okay because we're getting we're getting uh the good conversation in where we really really wanted it um i'll i'll go first just because i think i have the shortest history of the three of us with the game um I had, I mean, I'd heard about it for so long. It was just like the soul series. It was always like this kind of like devil on my shoulder. And, and, but I mean, that as a compliment to the series, it was just like, you need to play these games, play these games. Um, and I guess that devil was probably mostly Aaron. And then eventually Tom, um, uh, probably Tom too. I just maybe ignored you when you were talking about Bloodborne. I was like, ah, I'll get to it eventually. Uh, but I played it probably for the first time, like three years ago, I think. And it feels like even more recently than that. And I mean, I played it after Dark Souls one. And so I, and it was just, it blew me away. Um, I, I've loved it ever since. And yeah, I mean, I, it kind of brought me closer to both of you two. Um, Tom and I have played it a bunch. Aaron and I have played it. Um, yeah. Well, it's a fantastic game. Um, I'll go next because I probably have, if we're going in descending order, I probably have the next least amount of experience, but um, a little bit more than you, James. I got this uh, game as soon as I you know, could. I had played Dark Souls 1, Dark Souls 2. I had beaten those. I had played them multiple times. So I was very excited for Bloodborne. I kind of followed it, bought, bought a PS4 just to play it, and it just inhaled the game. Just played it start to finish, didn't take any breaks, didn't pause to play anything else. Um, you know, replayed it, uh, played this game multiple times. Played it uh, really, you know, when Dark Souls games, I'll play often to experiment with gameplay style. So I'll try sorcery builds. I'll try different things like that, dex builds. But with Bloodborne, every time I replay it, I basically just stick with the build I always do. I replay it to experience the story again and the atmosphere and just the quick movement and combat. Um, so I return to this game, you know, a decent amount. And uh, I just I love it. I, I adore it. So how about you, Tom? Yeah, so I so I so I saw the game was on sale um, on the PlayStation Store with the DLC included uh, in 2016. So not so I did not get it on release. I got it about a year after it came out, um, but I didn't actually play it until two years later in 2018. Um, so that was my first experience with the game. I had not watched any footage of the game really. Um, didn't understand any like how it differed from the, the other Souls games. Um, didn't have really any impressions about the game whatsoever. So that's probably why I didn't, I didn't play it um, once I had bought it. But when I did play it, uh, like I said, that was a transformative experience for me. Um, I, there are two moments in the game, my first time playing that I'll never forget. The first of which was experiencing Central Yarnum as a starting area, which I know people have their opinions about it relative to other starting areas of the game, but... Um, that is is the, is the my favorite starting area, um, and just being able to walk the streets of Yarnum, I think, was something else. Um, and the second and significantly more influential 
um, moment of the game for me was when you, and I won't go too much into it, but um, when the ritual is broken and you first see the pale blood sky in uh, the hidden city of Yaragul, that to me was, uh, it blew my mind. It blew my mind. Um, There's really no, nothing else to say about that. Um, That was, that was when I realized that this, all this Lovecraftian, um, influences coming into the game and and from that point to the end and then into the DLC as well um, I was just t- taken away by by everything about the game um, especially the story I, I I think after I finished it I probably watched every video I could find about Bloodborne lore I bought all of Lovecraft's uh, you know can get a condensed version of Lovecraft's works um, and yeah so needless to say this is my favorite game uh, of all time it is definitely up there. And, it's I mean, one of my favorites too. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, all right. So we're gonna get into a little bit more of the details of the game itself. Um, so we we touched on this briefly last episode, so I won't go through it extremely quickly now. That the, the storytelling of style of this game and of kind of the Soulsborne series in general is very minimalist, very indirect. Um, the plot is revealed through item descriptions, conversations with uh, NPCs, through the scenery. Um yeah, the environments in general, there's a lot of gaps left on purpose for the player to fill in. And man, have people done that. There are so many YouTube videos and video essays and such that of people analyzing the game. The wiki is massive. We couldn't even get through the wiki in like four episodes. Um, it, it, yeah, it, it's, it's just, that's just the way that they enjoy telling their stories. And I think it works really, really well. Um, and so NPCs in general are in kind of, this is also like the rest of the series uh, is that they're very unsettling or off-putting. They always sound sinister. Like they're up to something, even when they're being helpful. Um, NPCs offer a lot of interesting like quest lines. You can kind of see like these characters, like their own personal like quests that you're helping them with kind of play out. And it doesn't necessarily like always affect like the, the core story doesn't like alter that, but it's really, it, they run in parallel with the main story really well. Um, and again, they offer so much more like story to boot. Um, and it, it, it could take like, you could be revisiting the same NPCs over and over again. It takes long parts of the game to actually see their quests complete, but it's very, very worth it. I think for most NPCs just in the series in general and in the, in, in this game. Um, but not all of it, you won't, you might not see all of it um, right away. Um, they're your first time playing it because you might miss an NPC. You might not recruit one or say the right thing to them. Um, and some of them will die um, depending on what your actions are. You won't kill them directly, um, but you can, though, you can, you can want. kill just about all of them. Um, but sometimes, you know, you might, say the wrong thing to one some person or maybe recruit someone you shouldn't and then they'll kill other NPCs that you've recruited. The game likes to to fuck with you in that way. <laughs> and I uh, find that uh, that kind of trolling uh, pretty funny. I Like you said, uh, I think it's cool how they sync up with um, kind of the world state changes. Tom, you mentioned <clears throat> something that really blew your mind is, you know, the Pale Blood Moon. And it's kind of interesting to have these NPCs in a central area and you can check back on them after world change states like that. And pretty much most of them will also have a reaction. Um, yep. So it's, it's a cool yeah. way to see still living somewhat sane citizens of this city kind of reacting to what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think you could basically describe the progression of the main game as a descent into madness, which I think is a pretty fitting description. Um, 
and it's 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 nice to maybe nice isn't the right word but it's it's cool to see that all of the npcs around you even the ones that seem like they kind of have their shit together um are sort of following you in, into that descent um and yeah you can you can definitely see that in in the npcs visibly going mad uh, in some in some cases in other cases just straight up dying yeah um but yeah, I, I, and, I, and I, the way that it functions with the, with the world state changes, which maybe we can get into a bit later, um, I think that works really well for the game. Yeah, definitely. Um, Gameplay-wise, we mentioned that this is a third-person action adventure horror RPG. Um, kind of your experience points or whatever you want to call that in these games, your currency and such, are called Blood Echoes. We are not going to call them that. At least I'm not. Tom, you're welcome to if you want. I think Aaron and I are going to call them souls. <laughs> and I'll, that's I'll kind of, up for sure. <laughs> I'll always be calling them souls because it's just easier. Blood Echoes is too many syllables. I'm going to say those bloody, bloody X. <laughs> that works too. Black Echoes. Yeah. Uh, Black yeah. Um, so, so I almost did it. Souls are used to level up certain stats. Uh, they, they can increase your abilities, help you equip certain items and weapons. You can craft, you know, make, make your items better using, using them. And kind of like all the other souls games, the, the player is in total control of leveling up. They can control when to level up and what stats to level up, like what to spend their, their souls on. Um, and obviously leveling up makes play easier. Um, you can beat the game at the lowest possible level you have, which is crazy. I think the game, like you just got to have mastered everything. It's, um, there are people who do it. They'll, they'll, they'll do level, uh, the minimal level runs, um, which is crazy to think. I, I love a game where you could do that. And I think like, even like breath of the wild is kind of like that too. You don't, you can beat the game without, um, getting a single like heart piece or anything like that. Uh, and I just think that's neat. It's not the way I want to play the game, but uh, very cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I believe the lowest level is four, Tom. Uh, you had that in here. I, I thought it was level one. Some games in this whole series, it's level one, but this one yeah, you can be at a level four. Um, I think the level cap is 255. Is that right? As far as I'll, I'll know. Yeah, I'll say I've, I've never actually... I don't think I've ever gotten that high before because I think that that more or less requires going into new game plus for the most yeah. part. Um, or I don't think I've ever farming. actually gotten that high before. So I'll well, take your but, word for it. So you, I mean, you can see that it's quite the feat to be able to beat this on level four when the cap is, is 255. Yeah. Um, and I have, you know, we I have some experience. This is a tangent that we probably shouldn't go too far into. I've definitely have some experience beating bosses at low levels uh, that I should have been fighting at higher levels just because I like to torture myself. Uh, found it very rewarding uh, when you do complete it. I'm referring specifically to uh, Ludwig. Um, yeah, uh, you you have an opportunity a lot of times to fight bosses you should not be fighting right away um, at a lower level. But, you know, it's up to you. Yes. Um, so the gameplay is very weapon based um, blades more often than not um, some like blunt objects as well. But uh, as Aaron mentioned earlier, augmented by the use of firearms um, weapons are like trick weapons. They, they have like a trick stance. I think is that, that's what it's called yep. um, where there's like multiple forms where you have kind of your base form and your extended for, you know, your trick form. And just as a quick example, like, you know, there's a, there's an ax that's like a hand ax in its normal form and it's trick stance. It's a long ax that you can spin around and kind of clear out enemies um, that are far further away from you. Um, and I, I think the lore explanation for this is because, you know, hunters needed to, 
both be very versatile in combat, but also to kind of like surprise their foes. Is that correct? As far as you guys know? Yeah. 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 The miner saying that's, that's, yeah, that's exactly it. Yep. And again, we could go into so much detail about how the you know, diversity of, of weapons. I think we will go into a little bit, but we'll move on for now. Um, so the gameplay encourages learning only like a few weapons. Um, I mean, you don't have, you really could beat the game all similarly, like beating the game at the lowest level. You could beat the game with your starting weapon and you have a kind of a choice as to which starting weapon you want. Um, which I definitely have. Uh, I frequently went beat the game with just the fully upgraded, uh, what switch axe. I think I called? might, yeah, Hunter's axe. my first Hunter's axe. playthrough, I used the axe most of the game. Um, yep. And then I used so many other weapons in the multiple times since. Um, uh, where, let's see what else um oh yeah all, as i mentioned all weapons can be upgraded um for the most part uh that will increase damage and not any other effects but there are there is a whole system in this game do we have a section for it later were we going to do this later blood gems i don't think specifically but it makes sense to put them here yeah do you want to do you want to talk briefly about those yeah, so like James mentioned, if you're just upgrading your weapon, so, you know, Hunter's Axe plus one, two, three, four, five, et cetera, yeah, you're really only updating or upgrading the, the damage. To get secondary effects uh, like, you know, attack, attack boosts, damage types, you know, so lightning damage with your weapon, random secondary effects, being able to carry more Quicksilver bullets, um, just random things like that, collecting more Blood Echoes, uh, you can equip Blood, or I'm sorry, Right, mixing up runes and blood yeah, gems. That, um, yeah, runes. Yeah, so blood gems. I'm sorry, specifically too. for yeah, are specifically for weapons. They do things like change attack type, so you know you can have lightning imbued weapon, poison imbued weapon. You know, emphasize blunt attacks, uh, things like that, blood stains attacks, um, and kind of other effects. Mm. So those are blood gems. Runes are a similar idea, but they equip directly to your character. Runes do things like increase defense against certain damage types, um, you know, get you more blood echoes or souls, uh, increase your quick silver bullets, uh, augment your actual player in some way. Um, so that's kind of the difference. Blood gems are weapons, runes are for the player specifically. Yeah, yeah and we, we have this later in the outline a little bit, but I think we should talk about it now, just about kind of character builds and like weapons and items and just the stats you have. So it makes a little bit... A little bit of sense to talk about this now after talking about leveling up and introing weapons and such, right? Because so some would say it's a weakness of the game. I, in a way, yes. In a way, I actually prefer it because it doesn't overwhelm you with diversity of weapons. But there, there are there's a lack of a variety of weapons and builds compared to other Souls games in some ways. Though I've, as I've spent more time with the game and, and also like through Tom's knowledge, also spending it with him or just on my own, there is, there's more like variety that I originally realized, but there are fewer stats to level up, which I think is actually kind of refreshing to go from another Souls game to doing, to going to this. I mean, there's your, there's your classic vitality, your HP, your endurance, your stamina, which can, again, can kind of controls, you know, stamina is depleted by your hits and your dodges and running. Um, but the main like build defining stats are really only four things. It's strength, which is kind of mainly heavy attacks, skill, which is like quick attacks and also controls the amount of damage that you do when you perform visceral attacks, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, 
blood tinge, which is just kind of a different type of damage, um, like a damage modifier. It's like blood damage that sometimes will scale with your blood tinge stat. There's certain weapons that deal that damage, like firearms. There's a bow weapon, um, things like that. And then there's arcane, which is kind of the equivalent to like the luck stat in some ways in the other Souls games, but it, it, in that it increases like your rate of discovery of items. Um, but it also powers magic. Um, and in order to really make a, an arcane build viable, you need to kind of put a lot of stats into magic and it's not really a viable build early game. Um, am could, I missing anything? I mean, no. And arcane builds, I, th- there are a couple elements of this game that I think are intended, uh, as new game plus kind of options, both in the chalice dungeons that we'll talk about, but also things like arcane builds, like arcane builds, I think make more sense on a new game plus or a new game plus plus, you know, to augment your skill set. As you said, for a first playthrough, it's, you basically have to read a guide. You kind of have to be an extra player to even pull it off. Um, it's, it's not really intended for primary playthrough or even a first run. I don't think. Yeah. I, I would say, I mean, yeah, like the first time you ever play the game, I would say don't do arcane, but like you can, arcane does be, can become viable by like mid game to like 60% of the way through the main game. Yeah. Well, especially, I mean, now after I, as far as I understand, there've been several patches and updates that have made mm-hmm. arcane more manageable, but I believe in the original incarnation of the game, it was pretty, pretty almost undoable. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, or until the very, very end. Yeah. Yeah, I would say of all the builds I've done in the game, well, I'll say of all the builds, but honestly, they they ultimately end up um, mostly being the same or, or, you know, within the same like set of four kinds of builds. Because like like you said, James, there aren't really a lot of stats um, to, to, to that affect your, your damage types. Um, but I would definitely agree that I, so I've never, I've never done like pure arcane or pure blood tinge because I don't really think that and I could be speaking, I could be putting words in, in from software in Yuzaki's mouth, but I don't really think those were meant to be um, uh, stats that, that designate like a pure build. Like you yeah. can do a pure strength or a pure skill build. Exactly. You can't really, you can't really justifiably do a pure arcane or a pure blood tinge build. Blood tinge maybe because you, you could just have a, a, a gun that's really overpowered, like the ones you find in Kanehurst and stuff. But um, I think they more so function as supplemental stats. So yeah. you'll, you'll normally end up doing things like strength arcane, at, at, at sort of the mid to late game, depending on how much you're farming and, and care about certain using certain weapons, or you'll do a, a skill blood tinge build, things like that. Yeah. What's um, What's frustrating though is you're almost better. You know, it's it's a sacrifice to split your stats like that. You, you know, if you just go all in on strength and all in or all in on decks, there's enough really reliable weapons out there that you don't, you know, necessarily need to. It's yes. fun. It definitely changes the gameplay, but you're not going to be as tempted to split your stats like that as you would be in maybe other games. Yes, yeah. and, I, and I think that is certainly the case. Um, yeah, I would say of all the builds I've done, I mean, I've tried basically every combination of these four, with the exception of like Blood Tinge and Arcane, which is would be ridiculous and impossible. Um, or like maybe arcane skill, but like just I, I, as much as I love blood tinge and arcane it, strength and skills is, is the quality build is my favorite um, or strength and arcane has been a, just a damn good time. Yeah. How about you guys? Yeah, I tend not to split my stats. I tend to do, you know, either quick, fast uh, characters or, you know, beefy strength bruisers. Um, so I've done those. I, yeah, I, I, I always try magic in the souls games. 
I haven't really tried Blood Tinger Arcane in these games. I've definitely watched videos on YouTube and like kind of read guides on how you would uh, do those characters, but I haven't done them myself. Okay. Yeah. I, I have found myself um, in, in the other Souls games to lean more towards strength builds because I like to have a giant club and pancake people. Um, but ironically, actually in Bloodborne, I found myself more drawn to the skill stat. Um, I think probably similar to what, what you enjoy about the game in terms of the weapons, Aaron, um, which are just like the quick and fast uh, move sets, um, you know, being able to sort of dance around your enemies. Um, I think, honestly, I won't say it's a weakness of the game, but I think that the slower, slower move sets of strength weapons in Bloodborne is just personally not, not my favorite. Um, I find it hard to sort of maneuver around a lot of the enemies and bosses in the game. Um, with strength weapons but that's not to say that i don't like them um uh, especially like 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 strength arcane builds like with the holy moonlight sword um definitely one of my favorites but yeah i i lean more towards the the skill-based weapons um so should we then talk about just generally kind of the offensive defensive focus of the game um yeah, Let, yeah. let's do that because so this game uh, absolutely kind of like Tom you mentioned Souls games obviously have a variety of builds but I think Souls games complement sort of sword and boards builds much better uh, depending on the game than very quick dexterous characters um, often Souls games have shields have extensive shields that you can choose from for defensive capabilities uh, no shields in this game uh, there's one and it's kind of a joke. Or maybe two. Do you know, Tom, are there one? There is, is there yes. One or two? Yeah, there's technically a second shield um, yeah. in the DLC that actually is really good for defending against magic. But honestly, dodging is is your best bet for magic anyway. So I've never use a shield. Yeah, Not even I've never, ironically. I, yeah, I've picked one up, but I've never, never used it. So as, as mm -hmm. we've talked about, you can dodge step um, much faster dodge than the dodge rolling of Dark Souls, even the fastest dodge roll. This is a very quick dodge step. You are still standing. You are still able to quickly attack out of this. Um, and you can dodge step similar to rolling in Souls games as many times as you have the endurance to do so. Um, I believe it, it feels like dodge steps cost less endurance than rolls and souls games, but I'm not sure about that. I have yeah, never thought about I, it. I think, I think they do. Um, oh. I think the, the endurance, yeah, the, the, the endurance mechanic or the stamina mechanic in Bloodborne is obviously, um, fundamentally the same as the other souls game. Um, but in terms of the amount that it costs you to dodge step and actually even the, the relative costs of swinging your weapons, whether they be strength, skill, et cetera. Um, is overall less. Um, I think the the intention of the game being sort of this this chaotic, frantic, um, almost like a dance between you and your enemy, where you're constantly stepping side by side to side and and getting in you know quick hits where you can, um, is the reason why they design the stamina that way. Um, and I think that is a a very strong strength of the game. Well, yeah, and it it connects directly to the rally effect. And tell us about that as well. Yeah, so Rally Effect is something new that they added in the Bloodborne that is, does not exist in the, in the previous Souls games. Um, and the fundamental idea is that when you take hits from enemies um, in general in the game, it is possible for a, a brief amount of time, um, I think maybe about on average like two to three seconds, yeah. you have the ability to, to hit the enemy back and gain that health back. So the actual the, the visual visualization in the game is you have a red health bar and when you take damage, you'll actually see um, that portion that you lost will turn orange and it's kind of like a little bit subdued. 
And if you hit the enemy back, you'll see your, your, your bar will go up without having to consume the blood vials or the, um, you know, the, the main health mechanic of the game. Yeah. So it, yeah, like we said, it, it basically incentivizes really frantic gameplay. I like how you said a dance because that's really what it feels like. Dark Souls, the battles, they feel almost like chess games, right? It's these slow, mm-hmm. methodical, considered approaches, um, you know, enemies kind of approach. You can lure them one at a time a lot more easily. Um, whereas these Bloodborne battles, it's it's back and forth. It's frantic. It's fast. You're exchanging blows, especially good boss fights. Good boss fights, you are definitely, you know, trading blows back and forth uh, and gaining your health back that way. Absolutely. And, yeah. and as, a, as a small point to that, I think you know, we mentioned that there's only two shields in the game. I think another interesting point is that right at the beginning of the game um, in, in the central Yarnum starting area, they present you with enemies that use uh, the shield that you can pick up, the wooden shield. Um, and I think something that's, that's noticeable, at least I noticed it, and, and interesting about it is um, the enemies are, are really easy to kill because they'll put their shield up and you can and you can maybe hit them twice and it, it goes up and you hit them one more time and they take extra damage and they're dead. Um, and I think that they were intentionally placed there because FromSoft is trying to tell you to not use shields. This is a game where you have to get good at um, embracing the the chaos and the and the you know the the hecticness of the of the encounters with enemies and bosses. Um, so having a shield is, is really going to do you no good. Yeah, true. Yeah. Because I mean, what are the enemies? What are the enemies like? I think they're also much, much, much faster than typical souls enemies. Yeah. And so Tom, please obviously jump in if we uh, miss anything, but uh, one of the primary types of enemies are beasts. Um, beasts, you know, and every kind of enemy has their own weaknesses. Um, beasts are weak to serrated, uh, like, you know, a saw type weapon, which there are plenty of in this game. Uh, and um, fire as well and right? fire right yep, yeah that's correct yeah. Yep. yeah both of those types and t- so tell us about kin tom yeah so so kin is something that you don't really encounter there are a few exceptions but you don't really encounter them until the latter half of the game um and and the kin enemies line up very much with the lovecraftian influence um essentially the the kin enemies are well they're they're different than beast enemies in the sense that um Beast enemies, you could almost argue, are essentially normal people um, that have transformed into beasts because of the old blood, um, which we can, you know, talk about another point. But for the sake of this conversation, they're they're beastly, you know, these grotesque, um, trans transformed um, inhabitants of Yarnum, werewolfy looking. Ex- yes, exactly. Yeah, very yeah. Victorian Gothic, uh, you know, werewolfy. Um, kin, on the other hand, are essentially basically alien people, um, for lack yeah. of a better term. Yeah, and and, and they're they're the result for the most part of humans having encountered um sort of these eldritch forces these these cosmic forces attempting to recreate the the what they what they can't understand um and that ends up with these failed experiments that are known as the kin um so you know some of them literally just look like 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 blue mushroom alien dudes um sometimes they have you know, uh, sort of that Lovecraftian like tentacles and eyes and and um, you know lots of eyes actually um, and just stuff in in places you wouldn't think there would be, um, you know, very grotesque in yeah. that in that sense, but not beastly per se. More more um, otherworldly, I think is a yeah. Is a, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. 
Um, I think in terms of, you know, gameplay and assigning them broad Dark Souls ar- archetypes, I think, like you said, the beasts are humans, but they also function more like human slash knight slash physical enemies. The kin are almost kind of the sorcery equivalent. Yes, uh, exactly. They kind of put you at a distance um, and you you have to, you know, struggle to get close to them. They almost use, yeah, like magic, sorcery yep. uh, specifically. Yeah, yeah, and in terms of gameplay and damage, they are primarily weak to um, bolt damage or, or lightning, um, which is, yeah, same same thing. Yeah, and there are enemies that are quite, like, quite literally humans that you can fight. You can fight other hunters in this game. Um, and But there's a whole, like, slew of other enemies uh, that we won't spend too much time into. We'll probably get into a little bit when we talk about the specific areas, but, there, you know, there are witches. There are these creatures called blood lickers. There are these shark creatures like these like man sharks that are just like just brutal (laughs) well so so two things um i think the blood lickers i think a lot of the random sort of like withered decrepit enemies in yarnum you know i'm not totally sure lore wise but i think they may be people who like didn't survive the beast plague or they they didn't transform they're like broken now um and maybe i'm making that up but and then also the shark creatures wouldn't they be like kind of the final evolution of yeah. like the beast plague of that area right I, I so think they're so. kind of beasts yeah I, yeah I think I think I think the 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 man sharks for lack of a better term are technically kin um because yeah. and we can go in this you know with the lore episode but um because they have that contact with Koss um you know in the fishing hamlet that that makes them kin essentially yep um so yeah in that sense it's kind of the comparison to like the beastly scourge of Yarnum. Um, but sort of this, yeah, like the cosmic kin equivalent. Um, but yeah, I mean, there there are enemies that fall outside that dichotomy. Uh, but speaking of of those shark creatures and certain wells, uh, frenzy. <laughs> what, how do we feel about frenzy among some other status effects in the game? Well, I mean, the next two things like that we're going to talk about are super Lovecrafty. Um, Frenzy being one of, I mean, just generally status effects. I mean, this game's got what? It's got poison. It's got blood damage. Does right? it have toxic? Is there poison and toxic? I can never remember. I can yeah, never remember there either. isn't really a distinction between the two. It's more so like I think it's dependent on the enemy. Like for example, Blood Starved Beast, the boss, I think does like more poison damage than other enemies that can also poison you. But in terms of how it's like, it's fast and slow. Manifested on you, yeah. It depends how it manifests on you. It's it's just ah. called poison though. I guess fast poison is technically toxic. Yes. Yeah. Um, but for, yeah, frenzy. Frenzy is the only status effect in this game. I like the idea of it more than I like its effect. Um, what Tom, is it just like you getting like going mad in a way? So, so honestly, um, I love I mean I love this game. It's my favorite game, but frenzy sucks. Um, I think it sucks <laughs> as as a mechanic. And I'm I'm sorry, Miyazaki, I'm sorry, FromSoft, but it really kind of sucks. And I think honestly they would agree with that statement probably i agree with you what you say james i like the the concept and the um for lack of a better term sort of like the lore implications of it it's essentially like you're, you're going crazy but it's like you're going crazy like for a very short period of time because you're encountering an enemy that's making you go crazy and for some reason that just does like 98 percent of your health and then you have to heal it back up well it's not even for some reason though and this is where kind of the lore significance of it falls apart it's you get like hit with these weird invisible slash blood red arrows that kill you. Yeah. Uh, which makes no sense. Like, I, I don't understand that in terms yeah. of, or like you, you brain aneurysm, like, sure. Well, that's what I always imagined. It was like, your your like brain is like exploding out of your head. 
Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think, but I don't actually know. I have no ultimately idea. Ultimately, the idea is that we, you know, we, you're not supposed to be able to comprehend it, but I think, yeah, one manifestation of the frenzy that, that, that's most notable in the nightmare of Mensis is the, yeah, sort of like the red daggers and, or that are like impaling you. Um, but there are certain enemies like the winter lanterns, which are the giant brain headed ladies don't really do that. Or at least I don't recall that they do that. So I, I think even if a winter lantern kills you, it still manifests as like when the frenzy pops, you are like, you can see those like shard arrows. Almost. Yeah. I always yeah. thought of it as like an animation where blood just kind of spurts out of you. That's what I was thinking. Like you're, yeah. Like you're having a hemorrhage in your head or something. I yeah. don't know. Uh, but speaking of, um, things that are driving people mad. Um, I, I would love for one of you, I think one of you two or both of you would be more equipped, more eloquently explain insight in this game, what it is and why it's so fucking cool of an idea. Yeah. So insight, uh, there's this little counter uh, on your screen on the HUD that I didn't understand what it was at first. I just saw that it was slowly ticking up, but insight is that counter and essentially what it, is is the idea that you're gaining more insight into this world you are seeing things that other people have not perhaps or that you have not seen before um, and the higher your insight counter is supposed to be kind of lore wise uh, the more of reality you are kind of seeing through uh, that's kind of being peeled back um, so you can gain insight from different factors uh, you can gain them from items, mainly Madman's knowledge. Uh, if you break those, you'll gain an insight. If you see a boss for the first time, uh, typically you'll gain insight because, again, you're seeing kind of this monstrosity that you didn't know existed before. So the idea is you are kind of gaining insight again into like this world and these monstrous things. Um, entering new areas will give you insight um, and certain other factors. Uh, Tom, do you know what other kind of things will give you insights? I try to think of them all. Yeah, I think you you got all of them. Um, yeah, I was going to say Insight, as far as a comparison to the Souls games goes, I think the closest thing that they are comparable to is um, uh, Consumable Humanity in Dark Souls 1, in the sense mm. that you sort of, you, you can accumulate them. Yeah. Um, but in terms of how it functions, it's obviously very different. There's no equivalent. It's it's so Correct. unique to this type of game and, and especially like the Lovecraft influence of it. I mean, the idea that you are that it, you know having a lot of insight reveals more about what's happening in the world that you're inhabiting and it's 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 a good thing to have insight but you're all, you're you're getting more insight by learning more about the horrors of the world and by continuing on that journey you're learning more and more and more about even more horrors that the world has to offer you which mirrors like so many like hb lovecraft type protagonists right they're learning more and it's driving them mad. It's, it's, it's such a cool idea. It's and so cool. Two tying thematically into those stories, uh, it makes things worse. Uh, yeah. It, mm -hmm. Both story wise and direct gameplay wise, it will change enemy designs, it will change enemy attacks. It will change enemy patterns, um, all almost exclusively for the worse, uh, I, making things more difficult. I did not know that about changing enemy patterns yeah yeah which will. is crazy um so again the the idea is as you're gaining this insight you're going mad and th things are getting more difficult for you things are getting more horrifying um the only thing that kind of uh you know thematically breaks this is 
there's just a shop where you spend this. Yeah. Um, and it goes away, which is kind of funny to me that like, yeah. oh, I I spent all this like forbidden knowledge I had and now I have a new set of clothes. It doesn't It's so silly. Um, but I, I kind of love it thematically, uh, yeah. even if, you know, it doesn't quite work when you have like a weird pool of water that lets you, that lets you spend it. Yeah. Tom, anything else on insight? Um, yeah, I just, I was going to give it an example as far as like the, the enemy moveset changes. One of the, one of the, I think easier ones to recognize are the, um, like the, the church hunters that hang around, uh, cathedral ward. That's um, exactly who I was thinking. Yeah. Well. So like the guys that have scythes. Um, the scythe will, will be covered in like a blue like ooze almost um, oh, kind of yeah. like, like, like when you buff your own weapon with magic um the my favorite one is the the same guys with the lanterns um the yeah. lanterns will just have eyes just I all over that. it and, and they, they actually, glow in this like sickly purple color yeah and they actually th- those sp- particular guys like in the like in the first floor i'll say of of cathedral ward um actually gain a new move which is the ability to shoot like magical projectiles at you yeah which they didn't previously have there are a couple guys up in upper cathedral ward that can do that already but the ones down below don't gain them unless you have enough insight um and then the other major thing that also kind of i never i never noticed it for myself in the game i I watched some youtube videos on it but what also just kind of blew my mind when i saw that was if you are in cathedral ward even at the very beginning of the game um with 40 insight which is kind of hard to get but if you're able to if you're able to do it um at the start of the game even uh you will see the the amygdalas hanging on the buildings of cathedral ward yes um which is super cool because you don't because and actually I remember going through the area for the first time and, and they, they try to pick you up. There's one in particular that tries to pick you up and yep. there's like this like void that just kind of like pans from left to right. And I had, I was like, what the hell is this thing? Yeah. Um, but then once you see the amygdala after, you know, after everything's revealed to you um, or if you have the insight, then it's just like, Oh, okay. Well, that makes a lot more sense. I well, can't even imagine. Oh, sorry, James. No, I was just going to say with, without, without like me, gushing too much about it right now i will say that the the insights effect on being able to see the amygdalas when you previously couldn't is possibly the moment that i fell in love like i i love the game but that that was i'm like this is one of the coolest things i've ever seen in a video game ever likewise and i i think what's so crazy you know especially about these games is People mine these games like crazy, and I guarantee when this game came out, there was a dude who realized you could farm insight, didn't know what insight meant exactly, um, you know, and did collect 40 in the Cathedral Ward, uh, like Tom said, and yeah, it was probably like, didn't even understand, you know, because the game was new and didn't fully understand what insight did, and I can just imagine, you know, starting the game up from the Cathedral Ward Lantern and getting that 40th insight and then just boom, seeing all these things and being like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> yeah, I almost I, I, it's better to not see it and then to see yeah. it later. Yeah, yes. yeah, absolutely. Um, So, Aaron, you mentioned Mad Men's knowledge before. You want to talk a little bit more about other items? Yeah, so items are kind of broken into a couple different categories. Uh, the first are healing items. So the majority of these are blood vials. Uh, these are a finite and collectible resource. Uh, you basically like pop them. You pull them, your character pulls them out and pops it and you get um, a little bit of a chunk of health left. Unlike other Souls games um, that had, say, the Estus Flask, Again, these are consumable. These are also non-upgradable. So it's not like you'll get a blood vial plus eight. Uh, You're just going to get blood vials. You can buy them. You can find them. 
there are other healing items like Yosefka's blood vials, um, but the primary ones you will find are regular blood vials. Do you want to tell Tom and James, what are your opinion on blood vials and kind of healing? <laughs> you both know my opinion on blood yeah. vials. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think blood vials are one of the weakest parts about this game. Um, and I, I, and I'm sticking to my guns on that, even though they've basically become a non-factor once I got better at the game. And, and, and I, and I'm not, not just talking about subsequent playthroughs. I'm even talking about like late game for the most part, late game, but there, there, there's still late game bosses where I would just struggle so much and I would run out of blood vials. And it was incredibly frustrating having to go farm them. I don't think a game should have that. I really don't. And, but when you get better at the game, you accumulate so many blood vials early on and you're spending less that by the time you get to bosses that might give you more trouble, you're not going to run out of blood vials completely. But just the idea that you can, that it's a collectible resource that, and not just a collectible resource, but just one that you, that I frankly think that if you're going to make it a finite item, I don't think they, enough enemies drop blood vials. And I think there should be way more. And the, the enemies that do are often like relegated to like the early game. You have to like go back to early areas, some optional, some not to get those blood vials, which is you just never have to farm for that. That to me, take, that takes me out of a game like that. Like if, if you want to be able to farm, you want to farm enemies to like level up, go ahead. You don't have to. But for people who are new to this game, I feel like everyone is going to be farming blood vials. It especially baffles me because they already did the Estes system and the Estes system is kind of perfect, right? Yeah. It's this finite number of heal charges before you get to the next bonfire, right? And then once you get to the next bonfire, you can recharge. But yeah, why punish the player for using those charges and then dying, right? Because that's essentially what it does in Bloodborne. It punishes you um, for exploring because you're spending your blood vials and then you'll just have less. Uh, so, you know, you're going to be less likely to explore. Yeah. But Tom, what do you think about blood vials? So in general, I, I don't think that the blood vials are a weak mechanic. Um, and, and that's not because, and I'm, and I'm not saying that from a, from a standpoint of, oh, well, you know, you just have to be good enough at the game to, to not, you know, not have to farm them. Um, and, and I'm not saying that there are, there, there weren't cases like I, in particular, I remember like for the DLC, the, the one time I really had to farm for a lot of blood vials was um, like for Maria and for um, Orphan of Costs. But those were really the only two instances I can remember where I really had to farm for blood vials. And again, it's not because, you know, I was just, oh, I was so good. I wasn't using them. I, I, I personally think that throughout the entire game, I think that obviously you have um, the like the world item pickups in each of the areas that, that provide you with blood vials, right? Like you'll, you'll stumble across an uh a corpse that'll give you like six blood vials in basically every area of the game. But I also think that there, I would disagree. I'd say there are a good number of enemies that do provide you with blood vials when you kill them. And it's, and you don't have to have a high discovery set or anything. Almost, it's almost a guarantee for a lot of the, the early game enemies that you get blood vials. And I think even in the later areas too, that's not necessarily not the case anymore. I still think that they're, that they, they appear often enough um, where I never found myself really having to go, you know, back to Hunter's Dream to buy more and more and more. Um, but that's my personal opinion. I will say that, you know, compared to like Demon Souls with the different grasses, I think that's too complicated. I think having like four or five different grasses um, kind of gets a little cumbersome in terms of uh, inventory management. I would even actually argue the same thing kind of with Dark Souls 2 with the different types of life gems. I won't go into that because I do like life gems, but I think the different kinds kind of to me, stresses me out a bit in terms of healing. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, I think blood vials, 
is a good mix between, um, to some extent, rechargeable, I'll put that in quotes, um, you know, finite amount of health that for a given area so that you still have that, that battle of attrition as you work through the area to make sure that you're, you know, you're not taking too many hits and stuff like that. But that's also, but then you also have like the rally effect that plays into that too. So if you're, you know, if you're able to, to play aggressively, like the game kind of is, you know, wants you to play, you don't mean you might not necessarily need to use as many blood vials. So right. that's just my stance on the, it. The, I, the thing I do love about blood vials is how fast you can heal in this game is it's, it's in keeping with the pace of the game. It's just that the fast healing is awesome. And I think they yeah. should have fast healing in all the Dark Souls games. But that's okay. Yeah, I agree. Um, let's move on from blood yeah. vials, though. Yeah, They're yeah, controversial, yeah. but um, so the other items, uh, as usual for Souls games, uh, there's items that just basically let you pop them and get experience. Uh, these are great because you you know you lose your souls when you die. Um, these are kind of hard souls that you can only you know you only pop them when you need them. You don't lose them, which is nice. Uh, status effect cures for again those various status effects we talked about. Um, and then items that just kind of generally improve encounters. So those are things like fire paper, lightning paper, also things like pebbles to kind of lure enemies over. Um, and then also upgrade materials. Yeah. Um, and then do we want to talk about magic again? We kind of already discussed. Yeah, that. we don't, I don't think we need to go into it. I, so I think we, let's talk about kind of some of the higher level stuff about multiplayer and exploration in this game generally. Um, and then I think we're going to end talking a little bit more about the themes um, and then the art and sound design Yeah, uh, is a longer than episode than usual, but there's a lot to discuss. Uh, so, you know, obviously we all very much love this game and I don't think we could do a shorter episode if we tried. I don't think we could. And I could. <laughs> good for us for not even trying. Um, so exploration in this game. So there are, pretty discreet individually named levels that very naturalistically connect in sort of like a city environment and kind of like a city outskirts. And that's um, different from the souls games because yes. those areas are uh, much more dissimilar from each other. Yarnum feels like quote unquote realer than them because I think Yarnum is more natural in the way it like is laid out as a city. Yes. Whereas like Lordran and especially Drangleic, like it doesn't, feel like a logical place and i and i love both of those sides of the spectrum i like i'm sometimes i'm just a sucker for like oh give me a lava underground level <laughs> yeah. you know what i mean which is actually somehow up an elevator <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> um so oftentimes there are shortcuts that kind of further like into a level that will circle you back to a lantern. We'll talk about what those are in a second um that you rested at in that area and the kind of these it allows like it kind of it, it rewards exploration and kind of going off the beaten path because oftentimes that beaten path leads you back to an ability to create a shortcut to let you get to the boss faster. Um, there's this, and we mentioned this last episode, there's this kind of cylindrical level design, I think it's called. Um, very similar yeah. style to Dark Souls 1. I think Miyazaki Not as much himself, in Dark Souls 2 or 3. I think Miyazaki himself coined that term, cylindrical level design. Yes. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, so this time in Bloodborne, there is more verticality to the space than there was in at least Dark Souls 2. And there's kind of a combination of it, right? Because Dark Souls 1, there was a lot of verticality emphasized. And when we say verticality, we're not talking about like you don't you don't have an ability to jump. Uh, well, like normally jump. You're not like it's not like a platforming adventure. Um, and Dark Souls 2, there was like this kind of this emphasis on width. And Bloodborne has a really 
cool marriage of both. Um, anything else you want to say about exploration now? We're obviously going to say a lot about it next episode. Um, I will say one of the weaker elements of exploration in this game is uh, the items that you find, especially items, you know, far off that you kind of have to run to and it may, may be challenging to get. Uh, they're not great, uh, in, at least compared to Souls games, in that there's not great variety um, in items in general. Um, and also weapons, you're not really going to be finding them um, in the world just because there's so fewer weapons and they're all trick weapons for the most part, like weapons are a bigger deal and you're not just going to find them lying around. So the random items you do find are like pebbles and maybe a little cold blood and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this game kind of starts you off in this kind of like central hub. It's, it's, it's like a hub world, but it's, it's well you guys might correct me on the lore with this that it's not like connected to the rest of the world that you're in is that true it's it's like yeah it's it's physically connected like medical medical metaphysical place would you right tom would you say yeah um i mean without going too much into the lore the the hunter i mean the argument I guess you could make is that all of like the dream areas of I, i won't go too much in this but um they're 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 arguably physical places just like not in like the conceivable dimension like 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 the 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 earthly realm i guess you could say but they are they are like technically places that that you exist in for lack yeah. of a better term and um yeah and when we say hub world I mean, this is kind of an area that you keep visiting um over and over again it's kind of it's where you go to level up buy supplies where it allows you to fast travel different areas and i hesitate almost hesitate to use the word fast travel because that to me fast travel implies you can fast travel between any of the locations of the game you can't you have no. to go back to the hub world it's another thing that i think is unfortunately weak about this game which is odd given that it was developed in parallel with dark souls 2 and dark souls 2 has a much better ability to travel to different areas yeah, and I, when you think well, about that, and I don't know if that's a function of the hardware, right? Dark Souls Two, possibly last generation. So possibly. who knows? But you're right; it's extremely annoying. Yeah, I mean, and, and this we mentioned runes and, and improving your equipment um, as well. You know, those things you can do there too. Um, there is also an ability there to create and explore procedurally generated dungeons called Chalice Dungeons. We will talk about those more probably next episode, right? Yeah. 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 Aaron, do you want to talk about uh, dying? Yeah, well, you're going to die a lot, so you should probably know about it. So uh, like most Souls games, uh, there are checkpoints, right? In the Souls games, they're bonfires. Here, they're lanterns. So you can rest here to restore your health, um, and it resets the world state, uh, meaning enemies repopulate, things like that. Uh, You can also return, as we said, to the hub, the Hunter's Dream, to level up. Um, When you die, which as we said, you will, um, your souls, your experience points, your blood echoes, they drop where you died. They become these glowing purple spots on the ground to reclaim your lost souls. You need to get back to them and pick them up before you die again. If you die again, whatever souls you dropped are gone forever. The kind of interesting thing that they do in this game that they haven't done in previous souls games um, is that the enemy who killed you may uh, may have your souls. So they'll give that enemy like glowing purple eyes and a little bit of a glowing aura. So it could be that you'll pick up your souls from a spot on the ground, or it could be that you have to kill the enemy that killed you, which I think is really cool. How do you feel about that, Tom? Uh, I, I love it. I think it's great. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I think 
you can say what you will about you know the, the the difficulty aspect of dying and having to go back and get your souls but i think the sort of added challenge of having to basically earn your earn your souls back or your blood echoes back by by killing um the enemy that killed you is both satisfying and i think just it, it makes sense um, yeah it's, I mean, it's risk reward, right? Because yeah. you could go back and get it, but you're putting yourself in harm's way again. Um, however, the rewarding part too is each time you go back to get your souls, you are learning more about the enemy. You're learning more about the world, about the route you take to get there. Yep. So it, it's never truly, or at least for the most part, it never truly feels like a waste of time. Right, and you can always run past other enemies if you want to. You don't have to fight every enemy along the way. Right, um, or you could get some help. Yeah. Uh, so multiplayer, like we mentioned in our last episode, which we haven't mentioned already, uh, listen to it. Uh, <laughs> it's a good one. And uh, watch the Grinch after. Yes. Uh, and then listen to this episode. Yeah. My, mainly this whole episode is about how you should watch the Grinch. Um, so there's a multiplayer element to this game. It's a bit different than the way that some of the other games do it in the series. Um, there are these things called resident bells and beckoning bells. And so in order to kind of let yourself be summoned. You ring uh, a resonant bell and someone that you want to play with will ring a beckoning bell or someone you don't want to play with, right? Um, depending on whether or not you're playing password, if you want to play with someone you know or just be able to be summoned into a stranger's worlds, um, the person who's summoning you will bring a beckoning bell to bring you into their world. Uh, and enemies will do this too, um, especially when you're when you, when you playing multiplayer. Um, it, if I have invited like Tom into my world, um, there may be a, uh, woman, um, the, who summons, uh, who brings a, a sinister bell that bell will allow maiden. the bell ringing maiden. Um, I almost called her bell ringing woman. Just, I, I feel like that's <laughs> I mean, just so, well, uh, I mean, she's, yeah, she's I a think... real hag though. She's not really like a, nice oh, absolutely. Lady. Yeah. Without a doubt. But I think the text in the game is actually bell ringing woman. Oh, it is. Oh, yeah, I, I, there, I thought there, it was Bell Ringing enemies, Maiden. There are enemies called Chime Maidens, um, oh, which are the same right. the same people. But the text in the game says, uh, uh, like, you hear the sound of a bell ringing woman or something oh, like that. Oh, okay. So it is that. I'm not just weird. Okay. Um, <laughs> and that will allow um, enemies or, or, you know, and I, actually, I will, you know, they are enemies because anyone, like we mentioned, who plays these games specifically to invade other people, uh, and gets their jollies uh, from that, um, they can burn in hell. Yeah, fuck off, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, just because you've been summoned to somebody, there's no guarantee that you'll show up next to the person. The way that Bloodborne kind of works is like if you're in like a certain vicinity or maybe it's wherever. Do you, do you transport to where you were in your game when you got summoned? I can't remember, but this is definitely just like the healing. An example of like they nailed it for Dark Souls. I don't understand why they changed it for this game. Yeah. Um, and like sometimes you have to kind of find each other, which can break the flow of the game. But really, I, I think we have nothing but compliments to pay to this. Like I've only beaten this game twice on my own. And every other time I've played it, I've played with basically you, one of you two. Um, and I I just love playing this game co-op so much. But like I like we mentioned, like I think everyone should experience this game alone because there's a, it's a different way of experiencing this story, that kind of isolation. Um, but playing with you guys is, is always a, a, an absolute pleasure. 
Would you say playing with blind summons is the soul's equivalent of chat roulette? Um, yes, basically. Yeah, I and I and I have dabbled in doing that. Um, this is gonna sound—it sounds like seedy, but I, you know, like play like playing with random people. And there was even one time I played with a random person who just like messaged me on uh, PSN afterwards. Was like, "Hey, if you ever want to play, you know, Dark Souls, I'm I'm down." I'm like, cool. And then I never never messaged them back. I, I would say it's actually exactly like chat roulette because you either play with people like that, you know, like James, or you play with somebody named like big Dick 69. <laughs> You're right. no in between. <laughs> yeah, there really is no in between, but yeah. that's just the souls game in general, I guess. That's you just true. summoned some guy's penis. <laughs> yeah, but so, so if you summon someone, uh, they can help you with an area and they go away after the two of you have been a boss. Uh, they get to keep all the experience they get for helping you. Uh, and you get some help beating the boss um, and progressing your, you know, story. Um, and it's basically vice versa. If you get summoned in, you get, you know, all yeah. the experience you earn. However, if you beat the boss, it will not advance your story state. Right. And to be even more specific, you get 100% of the, the souls you get from regular enemies, but bosses, yes. you only get a fraction. I think it's half, right? Uh, yeah, it might be. Yeah, half, the, half in, is a fraction. Games, it was fifty. Yeah, half is a fraction. You're right. You're right. <laughs> One half. Yep. Um. Anyway. Um. Yeah. Like we mentioned, you can be invaded by aggressive. Uh. Um. You know, either predetermined like NPC phantoms. Uh. Or um. Huge douchebags. Uh. In real life, who hang out in their parents' basement. Um. And, you know funnel themselves while they kill people in other games that's how i picture all invaders really i mean pretty much um yeah. or people that have nothing going in their own lives so they feel <laughs> the need to ruin other people's days playing this game online yeah uh do you want to take us through um these last two kind of points before we get into like the themes and design uh yeah so um new game plus right so multiple or covenants Covenants, yeah. So Covenants, speaking of invaders, uh, they're in-game organizations uh, similar to the ones in Dark Souls 1 and 2, where you join them to hunt specific enemies or people from other Covenants to invade other people or to defend against invaders. Um, doing these uh, and collecting enough items from slain foes, um, you can receive bonus items It can advance certain side quests, things like that. Uh, however, they're one, they're completely optional. Um, and then two, they uh, are much less, they're much more limited than options in other Souls games. Um, and you can't, ex you can't equip them like you can in Dark Covenants in Dark Souls 3. In Dark Souls 3, you just go to your menu, you kind of like equip the badge for whatever Covenant you want. Uh, in Bloodborne, like the other Souls games, you kind of have to go find uh, Covenant leaders. Uh, I didn't really dabble in this as much uh, in this game as I have in Covenants in uh, other Souls games. I don't know about you guys, but they feel a little more peripheral in this game. Yeah, I, I didn't really care to engage too much. Covenants in general, I think, are something I don't go out of my way to engage with too much in any of these games. Um, and maybe I should. Maybe Elden Ring will be a time for me to do that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. What do you? How do you feel about it, Tom? Yeah, I think Covenants um in the souls games are are very dependent on like the the amount of players that are actively online at a given time and i feel like yeah, similarly for covenants for each of the games i've always sort of joined onto the game 
after it's come out, you know, an, an extended period of time after it's come out. So I've never really, not to say I, I don't see people online, but I don't, I don't think I see enough activity online where I'm like, I'm going to put on that covenant ring or whatever and be like, okay, I'm going to wait, you know, to invade them so I can kill them for the covenant item and then upgrade it. It's just never really been something I've interested been interested in. Um, so yeah, yeah I, I haven't done much in covenants um, in Bloodborne, but I think one, one thing that's interesting is um, they're not exactly covenants really either. I mean, they, they are in, in, in some senses, like um, when you go to Canehurst, you know, there's, you can like, you invade people to collect the, the blood dregs to provide to Queen Annalise or, I think there's um, actually no. I think it's basically the only one because there's there's like the vermin one if you join the yeah. the league. But the vermin arna isn't actually related to invading people. You can get vermin from um, like like if you guys if you if you do co-op with somebody um, that is also in the league and you beat a boss, it'll give you a vermin. So you can yep. actually collect them that way. So in that sense, it's it's comparable to like sunlight medals. Where we where did you, that last time we well, played together. We, exactly. We yeah. Did the what's his name Alfred. Um. Yeah, uh, Volter. You thinking? Paul Volter. Yeah. Who, who's Alfred? He's Alfred. the one. He's a he's the weirdo in the shack in the woods, right? Yes, that's Volter. Yes, yeah. Well, yes, Alfred's Walter. the Alfred's the good blood guide your way. Guy. Oh my gosh! He's How could I forget Volter? He's the one. He's the one that, that allows you to beat Ludwig at a low yeah. level. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He uses the whirling saw. Yeah. Um. Anyway, yeah. But he's a solid the, bro. They're yeah. They're not exactly covenants, but it, it's interesting because you have like a. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but you have like a rune spot in your runes that kind of functions as like your covenant rune sort of um or it's like it's like your significant rune so like there's three of them that you can use to uh like you said aaron like boost your number of uh, quicksilver bolts equipped or your defense your offense etc but then there's one in particular where like the the league rune will give you increased health during co-op or the um the uh uh the vile bloods for the canehurst gives you um, something, some like aggressive thing for invading. I don't remember exactly what it is, but then Alfred will give you one that gives you more health per blood vial back. And that's not necessarily associated with the covenant. So it's sort of a weird mix between traditional covenants that we've seen in the souls games and something entirely new that Bloodborne introduced. So it's kind of a weird mix between the two. Yeah. Yeah. Something, uh, new and kind of old, uh, is the idea of new game plus with multiple endings, um, so this game features three endings, which I believe Dark Souls 1 and 2 at that point, and Demon Souls only had two endings each, right? So this I is one right. more ending than those. Um, so yeah, and those endings are based on certain items that you may or might may not have collected and you need to use them, but we'll talk about that uh, probably next time. So after you beat the game, uh, there's no choice to begin New Game Plus, like there are in some Souls games, you immediately roll over into New Game Plus. All of your items and player progress carries over, uh, but the story starts from the beginning. Um, so you can then try and work for the other two endings that you have not gotten yet. Uh, New Game Plus, I've played around with a little bit, um, not a lot. Uh, the numbers are bigger, essentially, uh, you know, because your stats are higher and your levels carry over. So enemies do more, but it doesn't really change the main experience. Um, Dark Souls 2, I would say so far, has been the, the beefiest uh, New Game Plus experience that I've played. Yes. And I think the game may be balanced, uh, like we said, for maybe arcane builds. Um, and also for some of the later Chalice Dungeons and Chalice Dungeon bosses, I think maybe the idea is those are for New Game Plus or New Game Plus Plus or Plus Plus Plus. Um, like, I don't know that they made the game intending you to beat all the Chalice Dungeons on the first run through, or like I said, to dabble in Arcane until maybe New Game Plus. But that's just my speculation. 
Yeah. And I, I wonder if, and I haven't been that motivated to engage with new game plus in this and Dark Souls two is the really the, I mean, I've, I've done it in Dark Souls one, but Dark Souls two is probably the most fun I had doing a new game plus run. Um, and it wasn't just because I was trying to platinum the game. It was actually like it offered to me. It just I, I felt like fun enough to, to, to do. But then again, Dark Souls 2 is my favorite. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Like and, and, and doing like Chalice Dungeons and New Game Plus, I don't know if they scale Chalice Dungeons in the like to New no, Game Plus. No, they specifically don't. So okay, Chalice Dungeons smart. are not. Yeah, Chalice Dungeons are not scaled, which is why I think they Because that'd be impossible. <laughs> No, exactly. Which is why, again, I think you were meant to beat them on like New Game Plus or Plus Plus. Aaron, one of these days, we're going to do the Chalice Dungeons together. Let's do, okay, we can do it on our first run through if we go to that um, Chalice Dungeon and just both beef up to level 255. I, I, I would I would do that. I mean, I, I thought the the, the Queen Yarnum fight at the end of the Chalice Dungeon I've, was a great I've, fight. I've watched the Queen Yarnum fight many times on YouTube. Uh, I've never actually fought Queen Yarnum. Did you watch the, the watchdog, the defiled watchdog fight? Yeah, yes. That, yeah, that I've, was I've watched all the boss fights, but there's the hardest thing even, in the whole game. Yeah, even just watching them, I, I have decided I will never... Uh, I will never even try to do that. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, Tom, do you have anything to add about New Game Plus? If not, I think uh, we should move on to themes. Yeah, all I was going to say is I don't really do New Game Plus on any of the Souls games. Um, it's never really been something I've been interested in. Um, but I will say that I, from what I've seen for, like, for builds, for like like specifically like Arcane and Blood Tinge oriented builds, a lot of them require levels that you can really only get to like in New Game Plus um so i think that that's definitely something we mentioned not that you can't do it new game but yeah new game plus i think is where those kinds of builds really shine yeah um you know so in terms of themes we have touched on a lot of this already and we don't want to like overemphasize the lovecrafting themes because there's a lot there's more to it than that it's not like if you don't like lovecraft you won't enjoy this game far from it um, but as we mentioned, like the idea that there's this cosmic scale of existence and knowledge, that it's, it's so vast and humans are such insignificant kind of dumb creatures that it is so dangerous for us to see beyond what is the world that's in front of us and to gain knowledge and learn more about the bigger world. It's, it's, it's detrimental to our society um, and our mental health. Yeah, it's like our teeny tiny brains are just way too simple and small to even contain this crazy knowledge. Right, and 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 this there's some marriage between distrust and Lovecraft, but I, I it's not it's not a spe- Lovecraft specific theme, but like tell us more about distrust because that's huge. Yeah, <laughs> I I don't think this is Lovecraftian, but I think this is a theme of Bloodborne, and I think it's a theme of most of Miyazaki's works. So in Bloodborne, right, we have this society falling apart, the society run by this religion, this authority structure that is not doing its job and taking care of people. It's kind of pursuing its own weird, wicked ends. And um, kind of throughout all the Souls games, really, there are these kingdoms that on paper are supposed to take care of their citizens and protect people. And there are these great lords who are supposed to kind of be in charge and make sure everyone's okay. And it's just all of those people and systems are kind of abdicating their responsibilities for various reasons in these games. Um, And we definitely see it here in Bloodborne. I think possibly in Bloodborne more so than any other Souls game, because it's almost 
every level of authority has failed in Yarnum, right? Yes. Um, the religion can't be trusted anymore. The nobility can't be trusted. Um, just all the systems that keep a society together can no longer be trusted and are kind of just breaking down. Um, I think that's absolutely on display here. I also think going along with societies breaking down, it's we see people break down, which again, we've seen in Souls games. Um, in Dark Souls 1, the, the people are just kind of these empty husks, these hollows. And Dark Souls 2, it's not quite there yet. I mean, some people are, but there it's a lot about the NPCs kind of losing their memories and losing their purpose and losing their minds that way. In Bloodborne, it's almost like people losing their minds in this Bacchanalian kind of heightened reverie sort of way. Like, um, it's almost like the citizens, especially in the first area, it's like they're having hurricane parties. <laughs> um, they're kind of they're kind of hanging out in their homes um, and you hear, you hear them whispering and giggling. Um, and some of them, it almost seems like this, like I said, this party atmosphere, Canehurst, when we go there, I don't know how connected it is to the beast hunt, but also it's this very perverted form of, of party of reverie. There, there are these sumptuous, you know, banquets of like gold and treasure in this, you know, really blood drenched uh, area. Um, what do you guys think about, about that idea? I'll defer to Tom on this. I, I, I kind of agree about everything you said. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, the, the same for the most part. Um, I think that the, yeah, it, it's, it's like, um, it, it's very similar to the Souls games in terms of like when you, when you as the player character are introduced to the world around you in, in the scope of the game, it's like after this great period of prosperity, if, and, and maybe Bloodborne, you can't really use like the same comparison, but like, I almost think of like Dark Souls 1, it's post Age of Fire, right? Age of like the, the fire is starting to die. And in Bloodborne, it's like, um, you know, Yarnum is this great city. It's, it's, you know, it's built upon a strong foundation of, you know, whatever the case is. And the healing church is very powerful. And, and, and at the surface, everything seems like it's, it's okay, but it's, it, it's an entire collapse. I mean, everything is, everything is crumbling apart. Um, and you, you see it, you see it in, in like literally walking through the streets of Yarnum and, and knocking on people's doors. They're, they're, they're going mad, even if it's not because of, you know, some eldritch knowledge, they're going mad because, society's collapsing around them. Um, I think it's interesting because, you know, ultimately it, in, in, from the perspective of like the, the, the Yarnum society and the Yarnumites, the hunters are basically like the last sort of bastion of hope against, you know, the, the beastly scourge, but they don't even trust the hunters. Right. A lot of the, a lot of yeah. the, a lot of the people you talk to refer to you as a foreigner referred and technically you're not from Yarnum. So that's also the case, but given that they, they recognize you as a hunter, they, 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 greet you with distrust they don't they don't, they don't trust anybody um because their their faith in anything has been shattered yeah two things uh of that i find interesting one how do they know you're a hunter because you look the same as everyone else so i, I find that interesting and i think there's an offensive lore well no i think there's interesting lore implications there <laughs> yeah. how does everyone seem to know you're a hunter yeah. even though you look like everyone yeah. else um but the other thing too is i think going along with that you're right in that there's these unintended consequences of the things that they're dabbling in and they're discovering. And I think, you know, this is a theme we've seen in a lot of things, not just Souls games. Um, I'm thinking specifically of Bioshock, right? Bioshock 1 and 2, they discover mm -hmm. this substance that completely lets them rewrite themselves in their society, but they don't understand the consequences of that power and how it will affect them down the road. 
much like these, and again, we'll get into the lore stuff in episode two, but the, things were discovered that they, the citizens didn't fully understand that they just went, you know, all in with, and it's, it's causing all these horrific consequences now. Um, also, we see kind of constantly everywhere this, this conflict between blindness, right? A yeah. lot of people uh, occlude their eyes, they tie, you know, bands over their eyes, they dig their own eyes out versus these other people that are obsessed with getting eyes. They want to collect eyes. They want more knowledge. Um, and I almost, I saw it as this conflict between like parts of us that are very bestial and parts of us that are very high-minded um, kind of in conflict. What I think of is in college, I was a religious studies minor. And one of the things we talked about in one of my classes is the idea that the Christian Bible um, is really a story about how humans are neither God um, we are not God. We will never be like God. And God, again and again, kind of reinforces that idea. And when we try and be like God or build ourselves up to God, he, he never allows it. But at the same time, we are also not animals. We are not beasts. Um, we have instincts that are higher than that. We have emotions and values and laws that are higher than that. So we're kind of stuck at this place between gods and animals. Um, and neither of, you know, they're neither of which we're in this middle area. We're not happy. We want to be one or the other, but we can't. Um, and I, I sort of see that in Bloodborne, you know, the descent into beasthood or the ascent into this crazy knowledge. Both of those extremes are bad, um, but everyone is kind of stuck in the middle trying to navigate it. And it's funny because it seems like no matter what, it, there's this, this air of like futility that no matter what anyone does or even you, nothing's really going to get better. You're just pick kind of picking one of a multitude of horrible fates. And that's, yeah, that's the thing too. This world doesn't seem to like, if you tried to stay yourself and not get involved in the politics and not get involved in what's going on in Yarnum, you would probably catch the beast plague. And that, that would be kind of your fate. <clears throat> you are kind of not even allowed to sit out of this conflict. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. Uh, the, the the poor citizens are doomed in one way or another. Yeah. So, I mean, anything for more from you guys about the themes? Like we talked about Lovecraft and these are, these were just kind of some other themes that I saw that aren't necessarily Lovecraftian, but they, they definitely connect to this game. I don't have anything, Tom. No. Yeah. That's, that's very comprehensive. Yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. <laughs> thanks Aaron. And Tom, yeah. um, tell us, tell us about the art design. Cause I think, you know, the themes are very resonant, but unless the aesthetic kind of ties it together, it, it's not going to hit home. Absolutely. And, and we'll, we'll be doing the art and sound design. I think then we'll just, we'll be wrapping up this episode. Um, yeah. And so like we mentioned, this is a third person game and you're navigating this very, like mostly like Gothic Victorian era, era like environment. It's, the central city is the city of Yarnum. Um, this is not London. Um, but it's got some London-y vibes, but not in the sense that it's like a massive sprawling city that kind of feeds into like other like smaller like suburban areas. I mean, there what Miyazaki wanted is to give this impression of an isolated city with only a few like small towns or areas as offshoots. Yeah, it's almost of like very Eastern European feeling. Would yes, you say. very much so. Um, so there's very these dense levels of ornamentation like statuary um coffins as we mentioned i think there's a little bit too much detail but it, it, overall i think the the art design is 
incredibly effective. But the I do think that sometimes the dense level of all that stuff works against the game lore wise because there's no <laughs> yeah. there's no reason there should be this many coffins everywhere or that they should be chained up. There's no like lore reason why a coffin would be chained that I'm aware of. Um well is what if someone it, uh, I, I so here's my explanation for that and I'm doing this kind of off the cuff now I only thought about it in when you we were talking about that earlier and I'm glad you gave me a chance to say it. I want what All do right. you guys think about this and I I I could be completely wrong about this. But as there were experimentations with blood and beasts appearing, it's wouldn't it be very likely that people in the town were afraid of turning into beasts and didn't know what was causing people to become beasts. And so they would have thought maybe in order, we have to like do something with our dead and we either burn them or try to like prevent them from escaping coffins. Now I think what Aaron said is still true. There shouldn't be that many. I think like a couple of them and being like, what the hell is they giving you the ability to interact with like one or two coffins that are chained up and be like, why would they do this would give more context and actually be more effective as a, as an element of horror than having them fucking everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Um, I think it was honestly just the case of copy and paste. Yeah. Yeah. I think you could, you could try to justify it. Like, Oh, you know, maybe the people that are like living in a particular section of Yarnum, you know, they, they, they can't drag their, their loved ones in a, in a, you know, they turn into a beast in this coffin all the way down to the, you know, local dumpster or whatever. So they got to put it right outside <laughs> their house and they just start stacking up and stacking up after everyone starts, you know, turning into beasts. But honestly, I think I, I to this point, I, w- I would agree with you guys. I, I would be more satisfied if there was like, not in the streets, but just like a large collection of coffins, like in the sewer somewhere or something like yeah. to, to suggest yeah. some kind of like yeah. burial location or not. Oh, burial, like, instead of a about- pig. Well, well, what about <laughs> what if what thing. okay? What if the pig is there, but there's a bunch of broken open coffins, and the implication is the pig has been like gorging itself. Oh, I bodies oh, they great throw down there. Right? I don't think there's any there's really any need to suggest any lore for the pig, but I, I... <laughs> no, I like I like that idea, Aaron. <laughs> the idea of this pig is just feasting. Hey Miyazaki, if you're looking for people, give me to, a call. Uh, yeah, yeah, give us a call. Uh, so. It, not only are there oppressive, um, there's like hostile, like characters, right? The whole atmosphere is oppressive. This is a very drab, gray, muted, colored game. Um, it's very sickly colored sky. Everything there's this, everything feels infected. There is very yeah. little, if not no beauty at all in this world. Um, and then we're not just talking about the city, but like the forest and the outskirts are equally terrifying and oppressive. I mean, there is, there is chaos and evil everywhere. And the idea that the whole world is against you in this, I almost kind of works better. And it, it's just in a different way. There, there's more be- meaning to it. I feel like in, in this game than in the dark souls games. Yeah. It makes more sense that the entire world is hostile to you in this game. Yeah. yeah. I think there's, I think there's, um, yeah, I like the way you said. There's, there's more meaning to it, and I, I feel like in Dark Souls, right? You're like, you've been you've been granted this like glorious purpose as the chosen undead to take down these gods, and 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 there's a lot to be said about the dark, you know, the dark medieval fantasy aspect of that. And it's you know, I'm not taking away from that, but I think in Bloodborne, it's more like you, first of all, you you don't even you're not even a Yarnamite. You're just a foreigner looking to get cured because you're sick, and then you you stumble upon this like this this hunt, and all of a sudden you're thrown into the chaos of the city. But in a way, it's like you're you 
become more immersed in the events that are transpiring in Yarnum. Um, and, and, and it is so futile that it, it's like truly nothing matters. Like in, in Dark Souls, at least you, 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 your purpose ends with, with you prevailing in the sense that you either continue the Age of Fire or you usher in the Age of Dark. But in Bloodborne, it's like, okay, well, you got to the end. Um, you have to wake up and pretend nothing ever happened, or you know, I guess you could, you know, you know, die. It's like it's like, yeah, nothing, nothing really matters. Yeah. Um, the, either way, I mean, the the this whole world is very just wrong, and not not in the David Lynch sense of the world <laughs> being wrong, where it resembles our world. And this is like this world is like I said, in, like infected. And on the world, even with different biomes, like a lake, lake areas and forests and stuff, the game is unrelentingly bleak and unpleasant. Uh, and in the, the Hunter's Dream, your hub world, like we said, is, is, it's like a safe haven, but it doesn't quite count. And there's even like, I, I don't know about you guys, but I, I was like, something's going to go down here. I was like un, uh, unnerved. Yeah. Well, also when you look at, we haven't really described it. When you look out into the distance, uh, like it's a very dreamlike surreal space you get the impression that you are balanced like perched atop like this very weird long tree trunk coming out of like a mist and there's hundreds of other blank tree trunks rising out of it like it's very weird like are there other workshops in the top of those trees like it's unsettling and yeah it's kind of nice because it's a little victorian cottage but as soon as you look outward, it's very existentially unsettling again. Yeah, and it is it is definitely the most visually pleasant place in the entire game. I mean, like Dark Souls 1 had Ash Lake, which is very serene, even yeah, though there's very, these things that want to kill you. Very Dark Souls 2 has had Hyde's Tower of Flame, which is actually striking. I mean, having just replayed it with Tom, strikingly different than the rest of the game. It's in beautiful. terms of its use of colors and beauty, I mean, it's, like it's yeah, really crazy. It's, it's hostile, but I, yeah, Hate's Tower Flame is like very pretty. Yeah, um, and then I guess Dark Souls Three, even though um, Irithyll, right? Irithyll is like it's yeah. beautiful, but it's not. It is really hostile. But there's there's some like I would I would say that it's beautiful because the city in in Irithyll is kind of pristine, whereas Yarnum is just like torn to shit, you know. Right. Yeah. It's, it's just falling apart. Um, one of you has a note about, (laughs) I, I, I I know this, I I've never known how to pronounce this. uh, (laughs) Tell us a little bit about that. So if you've never seen a Hieronymus Bosch painting, uh, basically all of like the, the demon devils, like that you've seen in a lot of artwork, uh, specifically the Simpsons, actually all the demons and devils in the Simpsons are, uh, Hieronymus Bosch. Uh, inspired but uh his paintings of hell are particularly famous um they're very like surreal and chaotic and have all these very scary demons like on top of each other with this surrealist landscape i don't think the nightmare areas in this game are exactly like that like they're not piled on top of each other with very abstract demons and things yeah but i do think the disjointed kind of nature and color palettes are similar and they have a similar level of like horror and grotesquery to them um, would you say that's true if you just like google hieronymus bosch uh, i so i, I, I am familiar <laughs> I, I am familiar with this artist i would have never had a prayer uh to pronounce the name correctly but i, I do agree with, with what, what i've seen of his work yes i would agree um all right 
So the last really big thing we wanted to mention in this episode is the sound design. And I think that it is, we have like a whole section dedicated to it. Now that we're going to take like 40 minutes to do it. It's not going to take that long, yeah, but we can talk about it, it is the sound design. In this game is strikingly different. Not in that the other games are ineffective because they absolutely are, but I was so much more like in tune or like with this game or more, um, affected by the sound design in this game than any other and maybe that's because it is a horror type game and i want my horror to have good sound and i think it's essential to the success of um engrossing you or or, or, um you know making you feel like part of the game immersion right but man is, is it good and more noticeable than in the previous three games yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Horror is part of horror is sound based. Um, you know, the sound effects here, they're they're kind of very visceral. <laughs> visceral, like, <laughs> visceral text. Uh, it's very like crunchy. Um, like there are a lot more like wet sounds, like especially when you're hacking away with the you know the um, hunter's handsaw or whatever it's it's called um things like that when you're using serrated weapons also what i noticed is that the mixing on some sounds feels wrong but i think it was done purposely so Mm. the gun feels very very loud um louder than really anything that's going on around you even when loud and crazy things are happening on Mm -hmm. screen have you guys noticed that a little bit Um, yeah like the crack of the gunshot feels very uh jarring every time it happens um, and then talking enemies in general or enemies that yell at you, I feel like the the mixing on their their yells and their voice is way higher than, uh, than it should be for the situation. And I think it's just to freak you out. Yeah. Um, and let you know they're coming before you can necessarily see them. And then this game also has like a lot of like, like you, you mentioned like vis- visceral and crunchy. Like there's like gooey, like, oh, yeah. like gurgling. Yeah. Oh, you know? yeah. A lot of gurgle. Um, a lot of just also, a lot of gurgs. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of gurgling. There's a lot of moaning that occurs too. Yeah. Like, like, uh, like, like lamenting almost. Like, um, I, I think of like, I don't even know how to describe it, but like, I, I also think of um, some of the noises that you'll hear like in the background in, um, in Yara Ghoul, like specifically just, I don't even want to try to recreate it because I don't know how. Yeah. Yeah, but but it's yeah. even like it sounds like like it, it sounds like it sounds like um you know like 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 those like amalgamation of all like the people stuck together that are like in the cart that kind of like follow yeah. you around. Mm, it almost yeah. sounds like they're like they're like moaning for help and it's really uncomfortable and it's really jarring. There's um, more there's more ambient noise like that too. There are yeah, there are those moans and also the fire crackling um mm, in different areas yes. and things like that. Um yeah, there's much more ambient noise I think than really any of the Dark Souls games. And one, three, one of the, three included. Right. And and one of the reasons you pay more attention to some of these noises is because there's very little music used outside of boss fights. And I've always said like one of the 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 ways to do horror a good horror game or movie is to know when to use music and when not to. And this game really knows Um, music is very seldomly used outside of boss fights, but boss fight music itself can be very haunting, bombastic, kind of like choral, um, like chanting. Yeah. There's like a, I mean, the general joke I always make is that all souls boss fight songs are like, and I mean, to some degree, they kind of, they kind of actually are. Yeah. They are. Um, but I, I think without putting my finger on it, they do enough to differentiate them. Uh, but you're right. When, 
when you see a boss and it kind of rises up and all it's like terrifying glory and then this big like this droning horrifying discordant chorus kind of breaks in it's it's effective very um i realized in kind of going through this and that and and stop me if i'm wrong but i'm pretty sure we didn't actually explain what visceral attacks are and parrying and i think we should yeah let's do that let's do that and then close it up tom do you want to do you want to lead that yeah absolutely um so yeah we talked a bit about guns um they they function as as they can function as like secondary weapons but i would argue that the primary use of them uh functions as the parry and repost mechanic of this game so in the in the souls games you had a shield equipped or sometimes you just had your bare hand um and you would be able to you know press l2 or whatever and you would parry somebody at, at you know with the correct timing and you could and you could follow up with a counterattack um known as a repost and that would do um significantly more damage so and Bloodborne, that mechanic is still present, um, but functions slightly differently. So you use your gun as essentially the parrying mechanic. Um, so with you know right timing on on enemies, and notably in this game, bosses are, can also be uh, parried, which I think is is new to the series. If I'm thinking, oh, well, I guess I think, not new, but for the most part, it was the first time it was used. And pretty sure you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking of like Gwyn, but um, regardless. Oh well. Um, yeah. You're right. Yeah. So, so basically, all the enemies in the game can be parried, um, and the visceral attack, uh, as you mentioned earlier, James, uh, scales with your skill stat, um, and yeah, it, it functions as, as the repost. So normally in the Souls games, when you would repost after a parry, uh, it's it's based on the weapon you're using, and certain weapons have better counterattack damage than others. But in this game, you always perform the same kind of attack, which is called the visceral attack. And I will say that in terms of um, uh, different types of attacks in this game, this is by far my favorite aspect of the combat in this game. Agreed. Um, because I love pairing, and that's how I have always played Bloodborne um, through the various times I've played it. And notably, and, it's not something you need to engage with. You don't have to be good at pairing correct. to, be, you to have a good not. time with this game. Yeah, you do not. Um, um, but it is but very satisfying. Just to bring it back around, um, this is visceral attacks are where particularly those really squishy wet crunchy sound effects yes and like there's this there's this boom that when you've when you've carried a boss like or or any enemy there's this boom sound where you're just like all right it's time yeah Uh, it's so cool and the animation is almost like you were like ripping their heart out and just like like pull like you're just like you're shoving your hand inside of them and just pulling it out it's it's it is literally very visceral yes like and in a in a big pig's case it's butthole (laughs) absolutely we are that is not a joke for anyone who's listening and has not played this game (laughs) um i think that's it guys i think we we think we we covered all of it do any of you have any covered all of bloodborne yeah not even close that's it there's nothing more yeah there's nothing left to say do do any of you guys have any lingering thoughts you want to share before we uh close things out yeah if uh, Uh, miyazaki's listening to this uh bloodborne cart should be coming out pretty soon um and if it's not yeah he must have been working on it he's not sleeping at night because he's just working on it i hope so yeah um i'm gonna say to all you kids out there google the grinch (laughs) yeah google the grinch (laughs) just google him and see what you can find out yeah all right well um we'll be back either next week or the week after uh with our second part um tom thank you so much for joining yeah. us we can't Thanks, wait tom. to talk about the, the rest of this game with you yeah yeah thank you guys for having me i really i'm a fan of the podcast um and yeah i appreciate you know being able to talk about this game because i love doing it and i'm very excited to talk about the lore in the next episode all right yeah so are we yep thank you both uh and thank everyone for listening um we will see you later <laughs>